Let's do it. And now, shining the spotlight on the future of hockey, Major Junior. Hey, Connor McDavid of the Erie Otters. Matt Barzell of Seattle Thunderbirds. I'm Jonathan Yerudo from the St. John's Sea Dogs. I'm Braden Holpe for the Saskatoon Blades. This is Gabriel Landeskog. I'm playing for the Kitchen Rangers. Hi, this is Sean Couturier from the Drummondville Voltager. Carter Hart of the Everett Silvertips. This is Taylor Hall of the Windsor Spitfire. Nathan McKinnon from the Halifax Mooseheads. NCAA. Hey, this is Jack Eichel. I play at Boston University. It's Alex Turcotte. Hey, it's Kale McCarver. Hey, this is Jack Drury. Hey, it's Kyle Connor. Hi, this is Ian Mitchell of the Denver University Pioneers. It's Morgan Barron from Cornell University. Quinn Hughes from the University of Michigan. Hello, this is uh, Jerry York, the coach at Boston College. The World Juniors. My name is Andres Fischko from uh, Team Russia. Hey, it's Joel Ferby from Team USA. It's Norris Sider from Germany. I'm Philip Broberg of the Team Sweden. It's Ellie Paul Lennon. Hey, it's Nikolai Ehlers. It's Matt Sogard. Hi, it's Timo Meyer. Hi, this is Jordan Edwards of Team Canada. The NHL Draft. This is Alexis Lafreniere of the Rimouski Oceanic. Hi, it's Gordon Bicep from the Sudbury Wolves. Connor Derry from the Camelot Blazers. I'm Alexander Holtz. I'm Lucas Freeman. Cole Perfetti of the Saginaw Spirit. Dylan Holler from the Wisconsin Badgers. Hey, it's Jake Sanson. I play for Team USA. Brady Schneider, Caden Dooley. Here's Marco Rossi. I'm from the other sound. And more. Excellent! This is the Pipeline Show. Good weekend, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Pipeline Show. This one is late, and I apologize. Here's what happened with uh, last week's show that turned out to not be last week. Uh, I did a couple of interviews uh, last week, which you'll hear on this week's episode. Uh, However, the other planned guests that I had, those interviews fell through, and I thought, you know, I I kept being pushed uh, to another day, to another day, and then it was up here in Canada, Thanksgiving, uh, and so I got to Tuesday and realized, you know what, the show last week didn't actually come out. So I didn't want to have a show with only two interviews, and maybe that's on me for being, I don't know, vain or something. But I usually like to have at least three interviews in an episode. So on Tuesday of this week, I had another interview and was quickly going to put that together to put out a show like on Wednesday, an episode on Wednesday. But then big news broke on Wednesday, so then I had to uh, push it back a little bit more, and here we are, it's the weekend, uh, as I'm speaking with you right now, it's a Friday morning, so in essence, is this is going to be half of last week's show and half of this week's show all put together uh, to make one very late episode, and uh, one of the interviews, the one I actually did earlier this week on Tuesday, some of it is already out of date. So I apologize for that. This is my mistake. It's on me. Uh, quite honestly, it's uh, an indication of how quickly things are changing these days as hockey tries to navigate uh, the COVID-19 waters. But we'll get to all of that in a second. Now, my name is Guy Flaming. Thanks to everybody who is a returning listener to the show. I appreciate you coming back for more. And uh, for you newcomers, uh, a really special welcome to the program. If this is your first episode you've ever heard of the Pipeline Show, then know that it's a little bit different. But if it is your first uh, listen to the program, then you won't know what the differences are. But uh, moving forward, the uh, episodes usually come out on Saturdays. Uh, Looks like this week it's going to be on a Friday. Uh, But I don't know when you're actually listening to it, so I don't think that matters. But I'm rambling, and there's lots of news to get to. uh, So let me do that. Usually we start with the question of the week, uh, but we're going to skip that just to get to all the news because uh, there has been a lot of it. Let's start with the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. As you know, the uh, league started regular season play a couple of weeks ago, 
and uh, about eight days in, two teams had already been shut down. Now, the government in Quebec dealing with uh, the second wave of uh, coronavirus has increased restrictions uh, greatly in the provinces to try to get a handle on everything before it gets uh, out of control. Uh, how that has affected hockey is, well, they have uh, like red zones and orange zones and things like that in Quebec. A lot of the teams are located in what are called the red zones. So those teams have been shut down. And through the first 10 days of play, a few teams also started getting a positive COVID-19 results with their players. And so those teams were shut down, as were the teams that they were playing against. So the big news this week out of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, I believe it was first reported by uh, Michael Alonset from TVA out in Quebec. Uh, the league has shut down everything uh, until at least October 28th, so a couple of weeks. There will be a smattering of games that get played this weekend, and then the stoppage that comes into effect. And it sounds like uh, people closer to the situation uh, believe that uh, while they're not feeling all that optimistic about a quick restart to the season. So they got about uh, two weeks of play in uh, before being shut down. We'll see how long it takes for the queue uh, to start up again. Then this week in the Western Hockey League, complete opposite. Although the league isn't going to start right away, uh, they have set a, a very firm, and this isn't just a tentative start date, but uh, Ron Robinson has uh, gone out of his way to say that January 8th is the date the league will start. You'll hear uh, all the details on that uh, a little bit later in the episode, but uh, the Coles Notes version is teams will play within their own provinces for the entire season. Uh, the exception to that would be uh, the two teams in Manitoba will also play against the five teams in Saskatchewan. Uh, but the five teams in Alberta stay in Alberta. The five teams in BC stay in BC. The five teams south of the border in uh, the Pacific Northwest for them in the state of Washington, one obviously in Oregon with the Portland Winterhawks, uh, they will only play against one another. I uh, don't know what the playoffs will look like at this point, uh, but you'll hear more detail on that uh, later on in the episode. So the queue shuts down. The WHL announces when they will start, although that is three months from now. It's not like the, uh, the dub has been practicing or anything like that yet. South of the border, the NCAA, most of the leagues have announced to start dates now. And those are uh, right around the corner. November 13th for most of them. And just today, the NCHC conference, that's with uh, Minnesota Duluth and North Dakota and Colorado College and Denver, etc. Uh, they have announced December 1st for their start date. Now, compare that to uh, post-secondary hockey up here, university hockey, the U Sports. U Sports has just announced they're shutting down all sports for the entire season. Uh, now, in terms of national championships, they're, they're they're still going to be able to play, you know, inter-squad games. They're still going to practice, things like that, but there won't be a, basically seasons. So quite the stark contrast uh, between U Sports and the NCAA. Also with the NCAA, the uh, Frozen Four sites for the years of 2023 to 2026 have been announced. Uh, Tampa Bay will uh, get to host once again. They've hosted a couple other times and uh, reportedly have been a uh, Great successes back in 2012 and 2016. A Tampa gets the Frozen Four again in 2023. No surprise, St. Paul, Minnesota, who always seems to get it every four or five years, uh, they are hosting in 2024. An uncommon stop for the Frozen Four will be in St. Louis in 2025. They've hosted, I think, twice, uh, but that's uh, not doesn't happen very often, so that's good to see. 
And uh, lastly, the 2026 bid is going to be hosted, or it's going to be played in Las Vegas, which has a lot of people excited already. So that's a lot of news to digest. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I've been uh, retweeting a lot of the, uh, the sources for these stories and the reporters who are on the scene in those places. Uh, so you can read their accounts of what is happening. Let's get to the guest list of uh, this week's show. The four guests that you hear me will join me courtesy the Troubled Monk Hotline. The tap room in Red Deer is open. But uh, more importantly for this show, uh, my listeners who are based in the, the Alberta cities of Edmonton, Red Deer, Calgary, St. Albert, or Sherwood Park, here's what you do. By 1 o'clock on the day that you want to enjoy those uh, delicious craft beverages, you go to troubledmonk.com, you place your order for home delivery, and use the promo code PIPELINE, and that shipment will come to you absolutely free. You pay for the beer, but the home delivery, absolutely free. And I know here today on Friday in Edmonton, expecting a light dusting of snow. And you know those first few days of uh, late fall or early winter when there's uh, the first bit of snowfall, how crazy it is out on the roads. Uh, maybe you want to avoid that. Don't go to the liquor store. Have the liquor store come to you. Order your Troubled Monk and get it shipped right to your door at troubledmonk.com. All right, the four guests you're going to hear from today, are the two that I spoke with last week, we'll start with Terry Doyle, who's been a longtime broadcaster in the Ontario Hockey League. We'll talk to him about what's happening in the OHL. Then we'll move to the Big Ten Conference out of the NCAA, and Paula Weston from USCHO, who's covered the conference since its existence, which has only been, uh, uh, what, a decade or so before that. Most of the teams played in the CCHA, and she's been uh, covering it all for USCHO. So we'll talk to her. Of course, uh, she's right in Michigan. That state's been in the news a lot for negative reasons. We'll just stick to the hockey with Paula. On Tuesday this week, I spoke with Glenn Erickson from Dub Network about uh, what's happening in the WHL. And at that point, there was no announcement about January 8th. So part of that conversation is going to be a bit dated, but I'll share it in its entirety with you anyway. And uh, then we'll close out the uh, the episode this week with the conference call that the WHL had yesterday with the Commissioner Ron Robison. A lot of media from uh, around Western Canada was on the call, including myself. And uh, I edited it down from about 45 minutes to uh, about 30 minutes. Uh, so you can hear all the details on the WHL's plans to uh, get the league going on January 8th. So lots to get to. Let's get to the two interviews from last week uh, first. And to do that, we'll head to the Ontario Hockey League. Terry Doyle is up first here on the Pipeline Show. Athanasiu on the one-timer, fired it off the end boards. Here's Ekblad again, takes the shot, scores! A four-goal night for Aaron Ekblad! Hi, it's Aaron Ekblad from the Barry Colts, and you're listening to The Pipeline Show. There's a lot of people with disabilities that can't just go out and find a job. So we set out to create a business to fill those needs, one stick at a time. The Store Next Door gift shop is a Yarmouth-based manufacturer and retail outlet store. So we make great ideas that any of our employees come up with, 
and we reuse and recycle as much as possible. Our most popular item is probably our hockey furniture. We take broken hockey sticks and turn them into different products. We go through a lot of hockey sticks, a lot, a whole lot. Considering that it's only been a year and we're shipping internationally, I think that that's been a huge success. Most people's reactions are, wow, you do this here. We don't accept can't here. Everyone here learns in different ways, but we want to give everybody every opportunity to find exactly what works for them. There's nothing better than when a customer buys something and then one of our employees say, I made that. They have meaningful lives and build things they can be proud of and get a paycheck for it. I'm Amy Acker and we change lives one job at a time. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Fine ham abounds, Mom. This is The Pipeline Show with Keith Flaming, and uh, let's begin this week's episode looking at the Ontario Hockey League. And uh, I'll be honest, yesterday I'm watching the draft and uh, and following along on social media and all that, and then up comes the story from Sportsnet that uh, the Ontario government's, uh, one of the sports ministers, uh, Lisa McLeod, I believe her name was, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but... Uh, has come out and said the OHL, if they want to play this year, they're going to have to ban fighting and, and body contact, which uh, to me is uh, that's going to be a challenge to have major junior hockey with uh, without contact. Uh, but let's get uh, closer to the situation and, and see what uh, my guest Terry Doyle thinks, longtime broadcaster in the OHL. Terry, welcome back to the program. How are you? Very good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, as I mentioned, though, yesterday's well, let's start with the draft first, and we'll get to the to the big story uh, in a second. But uh, anything about the uh, the draft uh, yesterday surprise you from an OHL perspective? I think you know what, nothing jumped off the page. I think there's a couple of guys that are going to be very interesting to see how they take the fact that maybe coming into the OHL they would have thought that their NHL stock would be higher. Maybe Will Cooley out of the Windsor Spitfire selected late in the second round by the New York Rangers. I know Jean-Luc Foudy goes to uh, Colorado out of Windsor, of course, in the third round as well. And I think there's a couple of guys, even, you know, Cole Perfetti going 10th overall to Winnipeg said, uh, he, I believe his words were that nine teams passed me by. Well, eight teams actually passed him by because Ottawa <laughs> passed him twice. But that's using right. that, but Cole, Cole is such a competitive guy and I've dealt with him many times. And that's just that competitive nature that rubs off and you know that, you know, he's a guy you'd love to have on your team. So I think it's very interesting to see how it all played out and, uh, you know, good in a few guys, and Nico Dawes, of course, that uh, we saw him with Team Canada at the World Juniors, which seems like so long ago now. But, uh, you know, coming out of Guelph as the goaltender there and being picked by the Devils in the third round after being passed over. So I think there's some very interesting stories, and I think it'll be interesting. We see over the years some guys that get picked in the fourth and fifth round, and then next thing you know, in two years, it felt like, why weren't they picked in the first and second? Mm -hmm. And there's some guys that just sort of fall off the radar. So I think that's going to be the interesting story to follow over the next couple of years. Well, and I know for me, and I mentioned it at the start, uh, the, the story that kind of came out during the draft had nothing to do with the draft, but about the OHL and the government official, I think it was Lisa McLeod, I think that was the name. Absolutely, yep. That totally caught me off guard. We, we've seen what's happened in the queue. They, they're, what, about 10 days, two weeks into their regular season. They got uh, issues already happening with their some of their Quebec-based teams. Three teams, I believe, have been shut down and a bunch of COVID cases. The WHL and the Ontario Hockey League have kind of penciled in early December as a targeted start date. And then this story comes out that uh, from the government of Ontario, the, the, the minister says if the OHL is going to play, they're going to have to do it without uh, body contact. What's your reaction to that? Did you see this coming? I didn't see that coming. I know there have been discussions. I talked to Minister McLeod 
about a month ago now. And I asked, you know, what's, what's happening with the OHL? And she said there were discussions and that the premier had dealt with the OHL as well, back with the whole situation of the players being deemed student athletes versus the labor law thing. So that was, you know, mentioned they had a good relationship, but yeah, this one, I think, you know, they saw how the Quebec league clamped down on fighting and added the additional penalties. And, but what I wonder is, what does that mean in terms of the reduced body contact, body checking? Are we looking at, like, what about face-offs? What about plays in front of the net? What about battles for pucks along the boards? Where I would say there's more prolonged exposure versus a hit, you know, an open ice hit, which we don't see that many of anymore, it seems, but an open ice hit where you make contact and you go your separate ways because one guy maybe skates away and the other guy's on the ice. So, you know, is this a body-checking penalty I want to compare it maybe to, for example, international women's hockey, where body contact, body checking is not allowed, yet they play a very physical game mm-hmm. and they battle. And if that's if that's still allowed, then I don't think it changes the game that much versus if they're saying we want egregious body contact taken out, which my question is why, in a way, because of there's other situations, you know, you look at any play in front of the net, there's a loose puck or a perceived loose puck we've got three and four guys together for an extended period of time and then linesmen come in to separate them out as well so I think that question you know certainly comes to mind in terms of what does that actually mean what are they envisioning and some of these things they talk about in terms of the body contact I see that more in a minor hockey situation of course versus in junior hockey where they would expect these players are being tested on a regular basis I know, 48 hours before the game, for example, and you have two teams coming together that have all tested negative. But I think what's happened in the Quebec League is not going to help things right now and a lot of investigation in terms of how those outbreaks have happened and how the spread has happened there. But, yeah, I think when it comes to the whole body contact thing, I want to dig into this a little deeper to know, okay, what are you expecting? And I love the people who say, well, the sports minister, you know, you need a sports minister who's actually you know, been around hockey. Well, I actually know she grew up with John Sim, who played in the NHL and played for the Sarnia Sting in the OHL. So she's been around hockey before. And so I think we want to dig a little deeper to know what is it specifically they're asking for. All right. Well, we'll still wait for that to uh, more clarification to come out in that regard. Let's talk hypotheticals, I guess. If, if it in fact does mean no body contact, for me, I have a problem with that because the Canadian Hockey League is a developmental league. You're supposed to be preparing these players for the next step, uh, which is professional hockey, where there is body contact. To me, if, if there's a season without body contact, it'd be like college football without, you know, they're playing two-hand touch and then expecting guys to go to the NFL. doesn't make sense to me. Could you see it happening without any kind of body contact, though? Would I mean, would you want to see that, I suppose? I don't know how you could. I just don't know how you literally could, you know, see a game played with, everyone having bubbles around them and physical distancing of six feet or even three feet. You you can't go near three feet of a player. Well, then that player just dangles through everybody with the puck and moves along. And like, I don't see how that game is played. How do you take a face off against a guy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There are so many things that, uh, you know, how do you play that? So it changes the game so fundamentally. Sure. The OHL has cracked down on some physical stuff in the past where there's always been a line okay, a player did something, they got suspended, but yet they had to do that to move on to the next level. Eric Branson was an example years ago. He delivered a hit that got himself an eight-game suspension. That's a hit that in the NHL was probably going to be applauded, but it led to an injury, so the OHL had to crack down that way, but he still had to play that game. But to make such a fundamental difference in the game, and indeed, you know, say you can't go near another player on the ice or you must distance, well, then how do you play the game? So I know some have speculated, is this the Ontario government saying, 
right now we really don't want you guys to play, so mm-hmm. we're going to give you something that we don't think you can achieve to say that, okay, we didn't shut you down, but we made it very difficult for you guys to actually start up right now. And I still think the second wave, the cases have gone up huge in Ontario mm-hmm. over the last 10 days or so, and what's happened in the Quebec League have made it difficult politically right now for the province to say, yeah, go ahead and play, and then you know, we haven't even touched on the U.S. border issue yet. Well, and that's where I was going to head next uh, since we're talking about the COVID stuff now. Uh, Terry Doyle is my guest out of the Ontario Hockey League, a longtime broadcaster there. Uh, that border situation, the the queue doesn't face that challenge, but we do here in the WHL and obviously you do with three American-based franchises. Is that a hurdle that the OHL can clear uh, in time for December, would we see something like here in the dub? They're talking about just the U.S. teams. There's five of them. It is a division of its own. They would just play themselves basically for you know the foreseeable future. I don't know if you can do that with just three teams though in the OHL. So is there a plan right now on how to contend with that? Right now, they're still they're hoping to play games you know in Flint, in Saginaw, in Erie, and not just amongst themselves. One scenario I've heard thrown out and I don't know if it would pass the smell test with the regulatory bodies would be that the team would be forced to sort of bubble almost in the way that you cross the border for example let's say Sarnia they're an hour from Flint you cross the border you're on your bus you cannot get off that bus other than to go into the arena and then you get back on that bus and go right back to Sarnia you cannot get off to eat anywhere do anything while you're in the U.S. and then maybe for example when you come back you must you're quarantined basically until you test negative Hmm. that scenario i don't know if that would fly and i think that's the thing with three teams the other it's been everything's been bounced around so of course it's been explored could you stage those three u.s teams in canadian cities where are you going to put them where are you going to house them who's going to pay for it that's a huge issue in itself because you know, do you double up with an existing OHL city? And, you know, does Flint play at a Sarnia, just as an example? But where do you house Flint? And all those things, and there's only so much ice time to go around. And the other scenario, and I think it's a question for the Western Hockey League as well as the OHL, sure, take the Western League. Those five teams can play amongst themselves. How many parents want to send their kids to those U.S. markets right now? Yep. I think that's, I think that's a hurdle that has not been discussed that I think is huge right now, and it's no fault of those five franchises. Those five franchises and the three in the OHL do an excellent job taking care of those you know, Canadian kids when they come over, setting up their education, everything like this. But, so it's not, it's not the fault of the team, but if you're a parent of a player from, say, the greater Toronto area, and, you know, hey, maybe this, you've already played two years in Michigan with Flint or with uh, Saginaw, and you love the team, you love the organization, you're like, I really don't want my son living in Michigan right now. And that's an issue. That's definitely an issue. And I think, you know, you look at Flint, they only had a couple American players last year. Sarnia had more Americans mm-hmm. than the Flint Firebird did last year. So I think and with the five WHL teams, I think that's going to be a huge issue as well of sending those players to play there in the current political climate, which the first Tuesday in November might change the feelings a little bit there, but I think until their cases quiet down as well, I think that's going to be a big issue. Hugh, I think that's a very valid point, uh, Terry, and uh, I'm glad that you brought it up. The other aspect uh, about uh, potentially moving the American teams to Canada, some of these kids are also in school, and the, the that whole aspect of it uh, would be a bit of a an upheaval too to uplift guys from uh, whatever their regular school situation is to suddenly, you know, guys who are in Flint or whatever and then suddenly they're in whatever location that you you want to transplant the kids that that 
to me, does not seem like a, a reasonable uh, solution. Yeah, I think that's where definitely would be a challenge because what do you do with, you know, say once again, a kid from the GTA, you know, a teenager from the GTA who's been going to high school and maybe has a few high school classes left to do in Flint. Now it's cross borders a little more difficult to manage that. Are you, you know, are you doing virtual schooling? Are you basically taking classes through your homeschooling? For example, I say homeschool, not of course school at home, but you're, if you're from Whitby, you're, you know, Whitby, or if you're from Red Deer, your high school that would be from Red Deer versus while you were playing in Seattle or playing in Spokane, are you doing that type of situation? So I think that's a thing. There are still a lot of things to, uh, to look at and take care of. Uh, from that educational standpoint, we see the players do a lot of virtual schooling and, you know, a lot of teens that were doing a lot of virtual schooling in the spring. But how do you actually manage that? That's just one more thing to add to the list. And it's a very important thing on that list. But the uh, certainly the quantity of the list is huge. And then, you know, the cost of all of these things, the cost of testing, the cost of this extra housing, cost of taking care of the education. You now, there's only so many dollars to go around to uh, take care of all that. And that's the one thing I've had discussions with people as well, where there's some that are on the fringes say, well, it's hockey. It's not essential. Well, no, it's not essential when it comes to life and death and, you know, people being sick and everything like that. But there are people's livelihoods at stake here. And we've seen teams have to lay off people and whether it's support staff with the teams who, let's be honest, they're not making a huge wage as it is where, you know, they're not making six figure wages to be the marketing person or public relations person for a team or a trainer or things like that, where they need their income. They have a mortgage to pay. And I think that's where, yeah, hockey's not an essential service, but there are people's livelihoods at stake here as well. Well, think about the broadcasters. You got to think about the broadcasters. Of course. Hey, that goes without saying, pal. <laughs> the queue uh, obviously started in, uh, what, about, we said about 10 days ago, uh, and uh, kind of a test subject, I guess, for the, the the WHL and the OHL. Let's see how it uh, goes in the queue, and we can kind of go from there. It hasn't gone so well, so very quickly it's uh, kind of gone off the rails. It looks in the Maritimes like everything's okay. But in Quebec, that province, uh, much like you were describing Ontario, uh, that second wave has uh, arrived and things have gotten much worse. Do you think the OHL and the WHL start in early December or what's your gut tell you? My gut has told me, and it's actually told me for the last two months, January 15th. If it was going to happen, my the reason and where this comes from is really nothing to do with what happened in the queue. My question has been, you start the season December 1st. What do you do with Christmas? Mm -hmm. Because the tradition, of course, is you stop the league a week before Christmas, you send the players home, and then you reassemble them around Boxing Day or the 27th. Well, we know spread has happened at social gatherings and everything like that. Of course, a lot of talk with Thanksgiving weekend uh, and then, of course, Christmas. So how do you bring players in for three weeks, turn around and send most of them home? Even especially in Ontario, you have the advantage. Most teams, a lot of the players can go home within a few hours, but you're still they're still leaving the team and the team control versus then and then turn around and bring them back on the 26th or 27th and start over and retest. I'm wondering about the idea. And this is just Terry talking here. It's just me talking. Do you assemble right after Christmas? Do you say, okay, come on in on the 27th. Uh, that's when we'll start our testing, start our training camp and everything like that for a January 15th start. I, you know, nobody officials told me anything like that. This is just my, you know, my gut, my wondering how that could play out. You know, that cuts down from 64 games in the OHL to a lower number. But I think at this point, if you can get in two thirds of a season, I think you just have to say thank you very much. Yeah, play the World Junior Championship, and then uh, those guys uh, meet up with their teams shortly after that as well. And in what about January 6th or 7th? 
play a couple of weeks of exhibition and get going by the end of January? Yeah, I think you you know you look at that and yeah, exactly. I think if you look at because right now they were basically looking at two and a half weeks from assembling to starting the season. So same thing. If you start right after Christmas with the regular teams and of course the world junior teams, uh, world junior players join them after and they're with the team for about a week and then start up. And I think you know gives everybody a little bit more runway to see how things go and work out a couple things. And indeed, this situation in the Quebec League. While it's scary for what the OHL and the Western League wants to do, at least they can learn from this as well. Not be the first one out of the gate. See what went wrong that uh, you know how resulted in these spreads. We've seen it with the Armada. We've seen it with Sherbrooke Phoenix now with eight cases as of uh, last update from that standpoint. So what needs to be different? And we saw that with Major League Baseball. Things mm-hmm. were rough at first. And then they got it back on the rails and had to tighten things up. People, those first few weeks of baseball, thought, oh, no, baseball season's not going to happen. That's it. They're done. No, they got it figured out, and we're able to get the regular season in and out in the playoffs. The NFL's having their struggles right now with a couple of teams, and as expected, it's having their struggles. But then they can learn from it. And so that's where I think the OHL and the Western League do have that advantage, not being the first ones out of the gate, so they can learn of what's going on in the Quebec League and tighten things up rather than the Quebec League will have to tighten things up, of course. The OHL and the West can already do that in advance. Fair to expect maybe uh, not as many import players uh, will be playing here this year, though. Uh, I think even the, right now in the queue, a lot of the imports weren't able to come over because of travel restrictions. But, I mean, if we're not starting until mid-season, uh, as you know, what a normal mid-season would be in January, a lot of those guys that are in Europe are probably playing and just would stay there, no? I would think that's definitely something that will be considered and uh, looked at. I know Guelph has a couple players playing overseas right now. One is he's Russian, Russian heritage, Russian born, but he's not actually an import player. And Guelph's already made it clear. We, we loaned him to his team over there or to the team over there. We make a phone call. He's on the next plane back. And then, of course, you're into quarantine, which that's the plan as well, that the players would come over potentially if they are going to come, you know, even November 1st, quarantine for 14 days, then get into training camp in mid-November. But, yeah, I think we will see some situations, maybe players who were expecting to join junior teams for the first time this year, indeed, maybe not come, especially if they're not signed already, mm-hmm. versus the ones who maybe have already played one season in the Canadian Hockey League, especially in the West or the OHL, would maybe still potentially come over. But yeah, I think that's still very much up in the air. And then, yeah, I would think the numbers will be down a little bit uh, from that standpoint because the players will have those options. would be interesting to see if some of the uh, European players uh, would use the World Junior Championship as sort of their two-week quarantine in Canada, and they'd be able to just join their CHL club uh, right after that. Might be something to think about. Well, absolutely. It is a benefit where, indeed, that's going to be taken care of. They'll be bubbled up uh, in Edmonton for the World Junior. So once that tournament is over, those players, theoretically, they're Canadian. You know, yeah. in terms of their rules, their restrictions, they are Canadian. You know, they're no different than somebody coming in from, you know, from Calgary to Edmonton or anywhere like that. You know, going from province to province right now, other than, of course, if they were going to the Atlantic provinces because they have their own 14-day quarantine. Uh, you know, somebody from Ontario wants to go into Nova Scotia for some reason. You have to quarantine for 14 days or, you know, if you're only there for a day, you have to quarantine while you're there for the day and get out. Right. And uh, which I know some people have done that, for example, dropping off children for university, um, then, you know, stay the night and then get out of there because they had to be quarantined. So I think, indeed, that might be a little bit of a benefit for a few teams where, OK, you're coming over for the World Juniors. Perfect. Join us right afterwards. You've been quarantined. You've been tested. You've gone through the protocols. You are no different than a player coming into us from another Canadian city. 
Terry, what else is happening around the OHL in the last little while? You know what? It seems to be, of course, it's this. You know, this has been the talk, and I think it's the teams figuring out how they can manage with all these scenarios. You know, can they have any fans? Can they have 25% of fans? Can they have any sort of example? Using the Atlantic teams as a bit of an example, if they can do that. And it's a challenge for all the teams to figure out, okay, how do we pay the bills? If we can't have any fans or if we have a few and, you know, that's where I feel for the, uh, you know, the staff that have been the ones that, you know, were laid off, had to go on the serve, for example, or, you know, not sure of their future. And, you know, that's where players right now are in a little bit of a, a situation wondering where they stand. And, you know, we've seen, for example, where the LA Kings took a few of their players and, uh, you know, signed them up with uh, to play over in Germany. Uh, some of their prospects, Akil Thomas, who scored that big winning goal at the uh, World Juniors last year. He's over to play in Germany right now. He was eligible to come back as an overager to Peterborough. Not a chance he was going to come back. The Kings had plans for him in their system. But yeah, everybody's just really in a in a holding pattern, it seems right now. I know I've had meetings and discussions with uh, people from various teams, and it's pretty much the hockey operations side has been planning for that. November 1st, players come into quarantine. November 15th, we start camp. December 1st, we start. Because you have to plan for that because mm-hmm. you can't say, you know, if something falls into place, you can't say, oh, we weren't ready for it. We didn't think you were going to go. They have to plan until told differently. But then when I talk to the business side, that's the one that they're really, you know, just trying to plan for. But, you know, plan for about 18 balls they've got juggling in the air and see where things land in terms of tickets and sponsorship and just even schedules. You know, as of last time I checked in with a few teams, they didn't have even that, okay, we start December 1st, here's the schedule. They didn't have that in terms of booking their ice and those types of situations because so much is up in the air. But yeah, it is very interesting to see that beyond that, of course, it was the, you know, the NHL draft eligible players and a few other players trying to get contracts. Riley McCord of the Flint just signed with the uh, Toronto Marlies, uh, for example, the Leafs farm team. So I think it's just a lot of players wondering where they're going to stand. And even those players that are just recently graduated, you know, where do they go? When does the American Hockey League open? When does the NHL open? Mm -hmm. How does that go? Those players that were signed in the spring. Um, Ryan McGregor was the captain out of Sarnia. He signed with the Arizona Coyotes as a free agent after being um, a Leafs draft pick, not signed, passed over the second time through. You know, he knows he's going to Arizona at some point to Tucson, probably in the American League. When? He has no idea. So he's just trying to stay in shape and, do his do his thing until so it's such a weird situation for everyone whereas you know hockey kind of has a calendar 12 months a year and right now the calendar's moved or right now you don't know what to fill in on what dates that's no, completely everything's completely out of whack uh, well listen terry i really Trust appreciate you see my, you see, i was just going to say you should see all the emails i get any news anything going on because yeah. with our tv broadcast i kind of captain about seven markets and yeah any news anything new Sorry, no, and you will know as soon as I get something because, but that's, we're not used to that in this business. Yeah. If the Quebec League had gone smooth, then you're like, okay, maybe they can pull this off. But I know, I talked to Sarnia about a month and a half ago. They like, we don't even know where we're going to put our players to quarantine. Oh, yeah. Are you going to put a 17 year old or our 16 year old first round pick? Are we going to pop them in a hotel for two weeks? Their head coach has to quarantine. <laughs> Darian, Hatcher oh, wow. lives in, Darian Hatcher lives in Michigan. What about all the billet families? Like, are they happy to invite all these people back in, all these guys who haven't been living with them for the last six months back into their house? Exactly, and then maybe even after quarantine, but then knowing the, the risks of exposure once they're playing games. Oh, yeah, there's so much. In, like here, yeah, Darian Hatcher, he actually commutes back and forth across the bridge like every day. So once he's here, he's here. So where, how does that look? So, yeah, I've talked to 
Like they wondered about, because the college here in Sarnia is right in front of the rink and they thought maybe we could use the residents if they're not. It's like, no, the residents like, no, we're jammed because we can't do two-door room anymore. Everybody's got single rooms. So we're jammed. Even for, even though we don't have many kids here, many students here, they do a lot of international. So the students we do have, no, they can't do two-door room anymore. It's one, you're, you're all single. So I said, no, we're, we're jammed. So there's so much logistics, there's so many things like logistically to work through that the teams are trying to look at. But And I'm sure some teams are farther ahead than others, probably because they haven't laid off any of their staff either. But still, there's so many things that you just don't know. I had a meeting with uh, the Windsor head VP of business stuff, and he had facility people on the line from London and Kingston. And they're they're planning for stuff like okay we could we could we could bring in twenty percent or twenty five percent of people and they sit sort of in a bubble where okay you four people live together you can have seats two three four five but then the next seats will be seat ten you know little bubbles in the rink and stuff like that but yeah there's just so many things and then yeah at the end of the day if the government says no we don't like it we don't like it the political stuff doesn't help and the government just said this weekend hey uh, basically only have Thanksgiving with people in your household and they're like. Uh, yeah, but we can go to restaurants, we can go to gyms, so there's a lot of pissing matches going on here these days. <laughs> uh, all right, well, listen, Terry, I really appreciate your time and uh, some clarification on uh, what's happening there with the uh, the Ontario government as well. We'll uh, we'll keep our eyes open and see where it goes from here. Hey, anytime. All right, that was Terry Doyle, that conversation I had with him last week, and as you heard right at the start, I was talking about the NHL draft. It was the day after the NHL draft, and uh, again, if you didn't hear the first uh, segment of this week's episode, I apologize. The first two guest segments of this week's show uh, were done uh, like a week ago, even more. Uh, so good time to actually have been a patron, because you could hear that Terry Doyle interview for the last uh, seven or eight days on patreon.com slash show. But we were talking about the uh, minister in Ontario that was talking about the OHL if they want to come back. Uh, they can't do have uh, body contact. Well... Since then, that's kind of been uh, a bit laughed at, I guess, that the the idea of playing uh, a CHL season with no body contact. And as somebody else pointed out uh, to me, and I mentioned it to Terry in that uh, interview, uh, things like uh, taking face-offs. I mean, people get pretty darn close, and there's no body contact when you're just lining up to take a face-off. But uh, you're close enough to breathe into each other's face. Uh, so not sure how feasible that is uh, from that minister. And... Uh, that was a question that was asked of uh, WHL Commissioner Ron Robison, and he kind of chuckled when he was asked about that, uh, saying, uh, no, I, I don't think anybody is going to question that out here in the West. Uh, they know how hockey is played. So uh, taking a bit of a swipe at that minister in Ontario. All right, go from uh, last week's interview with Terry Doyle to last week's interview with Paula Weston from USCHO talking about the Big Ten. Last week they announced uh, their startup plan for November 13th. Also, the inclusion of the Arizona State Sun Devils this year as uh, sort of honorary members of the Big Ten. We'll get the lowdown from Paula next here on the Pipeline Show. McCarthy trying to get it out of his own zone. Picks it up again behind the USA goal. This time a safe play and he finds Turcotte. With Gildon, shorthanded and over line. Turcotte out in front. Score! What a move! Alex Turcotte, a short-handed goal. It's Alex Turcotte from Team USA, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. Black eyes open wide. It's time to testify. There's no room for lies, and everyone's waiting for you. Passion.
talent, development. NCAA hockey offers all that and its players graduate at a 90% rate. Ben Bishop. Backhand scores! Wow, what a goal! Andy Green. And Ryan Miller were stars on campus before the NHL stage. Whether you are a fan or a player, nothing compares to college hockey. Visit collegehockeyinc.com and follow at College Hockey. Champions of the college hockey world! You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. All right, thumbs up. Ready, Let's sir. do this. Leroy We are back on The Pipeline Show. Time for an NCAA campus report. Of course, those are always brought to you by College Hockey, Inc. If you're a player or you have one in your family and they need to know what they can and can't do to maintain their NCAA eligibility, well, College Hockey, Inc. is a great resource, great place to start. You can get in contact with them as well. Nate Ewell or Mike Snee, and they can uh, answer any of the questions that you might have. College hockey back on the uh, the front burner now, as uh, a lot of the conferences have uh, pinpointed start dates or potential start dates, and including the Big Ten and big news for the Big Ten. Arizona State's going to play a lot of games inside the conference uh, this year, uh, and uh, they are targeting November 13th. Locally here, I know that uh, – the head coach from uh, Wisconsin, Tony Granato, was on uh, local radio because Dylan Holloway was drafted by the Oilers, and he's uh, stated that November 13th is when they're uh, getting ready to go uh, as well. Uh, my guest today to talk about the Big Ten is uh, Paula Weston from USCHO, who's right in Michigan. Uh, and I know, Paula, there's lots of news about Michigan right now, but hey, <laughs> why don't we turn that around and talk hockey in Michigan? Uh, thanks for doing this again. How are you? Oh, I'm great, thanks. You know, what a delightful surprise. Down here in the States, we talk about an October surprise. That's something in advance of an election. What a delightful thing that the October surprise was the announcement of Big Ten hockey. Yeah. So I'm pretty I'm pretty jazzed about that. It, now, it may be getting lost in the uh, the local news there uh, these days. You know, a lot of current <laughs> events happening. But let's talk about the hockey. And I guess we'll start with November 13th. I know it, there had been articles that I'd read that they had kind of pushed things back to the end of November, and that was kind of wishful thinking. Are you surprised with right. the November 13th uh, target? I'm shocked. I'm not going to lie. Um, in fact, you know, internal talks among most college hockey writers were like, eh, we'll be really lucky if we get a season that begins in January. That's pretty much what, what we thought, right? Right, right. And so for January 3rd, especially since um, uh, the Ivies have said they're not going to start up, of course, they always start later anyway, right, for hockey. So um, but still, I just, yes, I am very surprised. And now I'm sort of scrambling and getting my head out of, you know, other things that are going on in the United States and trying to turn my attention to the college hockey world and going, oh, yeah, I remember college hockey. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is surprising to me. And I, I think that they, um, I think it's ambitious. I know that they've been working on and off. Um, and so it's so, it's such a, the, the COVID situation makes it so weird, right? That you've got uh, um, outbreaks in different places, and it affects different campuses differently, you know. And, and like, for example, Michigan and Michigan State are only like an hour apart in Michigan, but you might have an outbreak on the Michigan State campus, right? That um, or one of the Michigan campus, and then it shuts down practice for a few days, right? Out of caution. And, and I don't mean an outbreak like with the teams; I just mean at the campus. So mm. it's a so there's so many variables that I just did not expect to have some sort of announcement like that. Um, and I didn't, and I don't, I don't know what kind of um, consistency in 
um, practicing that they've had. I mean, I, I really don't. I mean, I know that they are practicing, and, but, but I, you know, occasionally I'll get an update that says, oh, you know, out of an abundance of caution, you know, nobody in this athletic facility, you, you know, you name a, a, a team is going to be practicing for a few days, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm not suggesting that I've heard anybody testing positive on any of these teams. That's not what's going on. But as you know, hockey practice doesn't happen in a bubble on these campuses, right? So, um, I, I, yes, I think November 13th, it probably will start. I'm going to be ambitious and say yes and optimistic and say yes. I don't know how it's going to progress, though. And yeah. and I know that this is driven by Big Ten football, too. I mean, I'm not um, – I don't really want to talk about Big Ten football per se, but since Big Ten football has begun um, and so far there haven't been any large outbreaks linked to that, um, any surges in COVID linked to that, um, but I – I want to be optimistic and say, yes, November 13th, and, and that's great. And I'm actually really excited about that because I need some good news in my life. Um, but I, like a lot of people who watch higher education in the United States, um, I have been looking at mid-October for sort of a COVID surge on campuses. So we'll see what happens. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the Big Ten football because I was going to ask if you thought there was a relation, you know, if there was, um, you know, some sort of connection uh, between Big oh, yeah. Ten hockey and Big Ten uh, football having started up Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And I think it's because I think it's um, because of, um, like I said, the relative success of that, right? That you haven't seen a whole lot of guys test positive and, and, um, and that seems to be going more smoothly. And I've kept an eye on that. Uh, just like I'm keeping an eye on all sports and how it's being done, right, um, for for that very reason to see how it might progress. But I'm sure that the Big Ten thinks, hey, if we can go ahead with the football season, we can go ahead with the hockey season, and it might be really difficult to argue otherwise. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm not even – that is not a judgment call on the Big Ten in any way, shape, or form. Um, that is just, I'm sure, the reasoning behind it. And so, but like I said, I really – I don't know how it's going to go, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's so much that we don't know about um, COVID-19. There's so much, and you know, the rest of the world is watching the United States, and the, the response in this country has been erratic. And um, from place to place, it gets weird. You know, it's, it's not consistent from place to place. Without getting political at all, you just have individual states that are that are dealing with it individually and and differently from each other, you know, Michigan, I think is handling it well, Wisconsin's trying to handle it well, but there's been a surge there. Um, so, and it, it's, uh, there's no consistency in that. And so you just, it's a factor you really can't, you can't count on. Right. So I, I don't know. I, that's what I got. <laughs> But yes, yay, November 13th. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that the players are practicing, teams are practicing. Yeah. Are the students going yep. to class physically or are they? is a lot of it by just online or is it kind of a mix of the two? It's a mix and it's not consistent everywhere. Uh. That's another thing, right? And so I'm actually, I actually had a hard time keeping up with who's doing what, right? Um, when they announced in, mid, at the, in the summer when they announced that Michigan State would be opening up completely on campus, completely. And then there was a huge outbreak related to a bar that had reopened um, near the Michigan state campus. And then students moved in and then they went home because there was a big outbreak. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I don't know um, on all of the campuses exactly how it's going, whether or not it's all online, there's a hybrid mix. There's um, I'm not exactly sure how that's working out. So, and in fact, I hadn't even thought about it. 
until the announcement and um and I haven't looked into each campus. But like I said, each campus is run differently. It's not like there's a unified national response to this, right? It's not like yeah. we said, okay, you know. So, you know, and, and I and I will say this that I know that um each of these member institutions is looking out for its student athletes. I am concerned about you know, student athletes and the staff and and everybody else because we've had such a difficult time down here getting a handle on it because of the inconsistency with the way it's treated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a concerning thing, but I'm pretty confident that each of those individual member programs is very concerned about it too. So I don't think that anything will um, will spiral out of control. You know, and, and I remember talking to each and every coach when this was announced last March that that the um you know there'd be no more hockey season which was just devastating um and each and every coach i mean the first thing they said was they expressed concern about you know their players and then about of course about staff and and everybody's families you know so i know that everybody is on top of that and i know that they'll do everything they can to um to mitigate all risk factors but it's so unknown and they're going to be traveling to each other's campuses and who knows you know, to, and I, you know, I barely get takeout. <laughs> I, I'm with you. Like, I hear you. You know, I have the groceries put into the, it's lovely. They put them right into the trunk of my car. I'm like, yay. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing here. Well, when it comes to the hockey, new look again this year is uh, last year yeah. Notre Dame came back to the conference or, yep. or joined the Big Ten. I know there's right. that history right. between the teams before, but <laughs> right. uh, this year Arizona State's kind of uh, getting honorary status. Uh, tell me why. I don't know. How's that for an answer? Um, <laughs> I, I really don't. It was a big surprise, actually, to pretty much everybody. Um, um, I I really was as surprised as anybody else, I'm guessing. I mean, and I don't know um, in terms of how the conferences, uh, you know, what the conferences' thoughts are. Like everybody else, I'm fairly certain that um, the, this is a step in bringing them in next year as full members. And and the reason I say that is because the Big Ten release, and I seriously, there's not much information out there, um, but the Big Ten release did say, even make a point of saying they're not going to be participating in the Big Ten tournament this year. So, you know, there's a distinction there. Um, so the Sun Devils can't play in the Big Ten tournament, um, but, you know, does that mean that the door is open for next year? Is this a... Um, sort of sending up a balloon to see whether or not it works, right? It's a it's a long piece of travel. Do they is this a trial to see if if Arizona State fits with the Big Ten? Mm-hmm. It would be a bonus to have another team. You know, eight teams rather than seven would be fantastic. Right. You know, so and and it's the Arizona State program is, is great. I mean what they have done as independence is really fantastic. And right. um and they're a big team. They're a big school. You know, like like Big Ten schools are big schools. You know, their campuses are big, and they have they have high enrollment. And so, in that sense, that they're probably a really good fit. Um, it certainly is, I think, really good for college hockey to see Arizona State affiliated with the Big Ten. I think that that brings a lot of attention to the sport in that part of the country. And we get players from out there all the time. You know, so you know the sport grows everywhere. But I really I don't know. The reasoning behind it, um, I'm as surprised as everybody else, but I'm kind of delighted. You know, it's uh, be very interesting to see more um, 
more of that team play because they are good and they're a very interesting program to watch grow. And, and of course, you know, you, you put them against really good programs consistently and then they will grow as a program too, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, so I'm guessing this is the first step towards seeing how they would work this out. And, and I'm guessing that money is the issue, right. In working it out like travel and things like that. So I am not privy to those conversations though. And people are being very tight lipped. I, I wondered if it was something as simple as just having eight teams is better than having seven teams. That then begs the question, why Arizona State, not Long Island University? But I guess Arizona right. State's the established program now. And as right. you said, they've really taken leaps and bounds with the program. They're a very competitive team, whereas who knows yeah. really what Long Island's going to be like this year. Well, and, and also, um, if I'm looking just at academic institutions and how they're they're structured, Arizona State is a better fit for the Big Ten than Long Island is. I mean, it's it's just the kind of institution it is. Seems to be a better fit for the Big Ten and what the Big Ten's sort of overall academic mission is. So, and that's not a, that's not a judgment on Long Island or Arizona State, either one of them. It just seems to be in line with, more in line with. Um, so, and and yeah, there's there's probably a good deal of wanting to make sure that Arizona State remains engaged in a way that is is meaningful enough for them to remain a D1 program because they have certainly brought a lot to D1 hockey. And, you know, why not do that to the Big Ten? I can't, you know, like I said, I wasn't privy to any of those talks. It really did take me by surprise. That might be because I was so, you know, sort of wrapped up in COVID times that I wasn't paying as much attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really honestly did not think that the, the there would be any announcement for hockey until, you know, that it would begin until January. So, yeah. um no, Long Island University is a really interesting thing. They um, that's uh, that they just announced. Boom! Hey, we're going to do hockey, and we're all like, "Oh, oh okay." Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and I and I'm sure uh, geographically, uh, you know, it, it's probably um, as expensive or as not expensive to fly to uh, Long Island as it is to fly to you know out to to Arizona. So. Um, for Big Ten teams, the travel costs will probably wash. So, um, but there are many more programs out east in the United States. Um, you know, conferences, several overlapping conferences that Long Island University would probably be a better fit in, geographically speaking. They'd be right there that they would be able to, you know, bus to places and things like that. And they are far the closest Big Ten team would be Penn State, and it would be probably five or six hours away from them. So. Okay. All right, well, that makes big sense. Big country, so. not as big as yeah. Canada, but, you know, big. That's, that's true. All right, uh, the uh, when it comes to hockey on the ice, uh, last year it was uh, Wisconsin with the big freshman class that everybody was excited yeah. about. This year it's the Wolverines, though, Michigan, such yeah. a, a loaded freshman class. Does that translate to immediate success? Or, like Wisconsin, they kind of struggled uh, uh, for much of the season last year. So, on the ice, who's the team to beat? That's a really great question, and, and, and the way you framed it about the Wisconsin team, because I'm still scratching my head about the Wisconsin team. I mean, sometimes when you see that, when you see um, that kind of talent come into a team, um, sometimes there's like a prima donna aspect of it or like a, a bad chemistry in the locker room, and there was none of that in the Wisconsin team. I mean, they're delightful players, right? So watching that was, was kind of weird. I don't, you know, I, I really liked the way Michigan ended their season last season. I thought they were going to go quite far. And so, um, yeah, I think that they might be one of the teams to beat. I, I, well, you know, they're only teams, but you know what I mean? I mean, I think that they may come in with a serious, it's a small league. They may come in with a really serious advantage. Um, 
the way Kevin covered, you know, when back when Michigan was in the CCHA um, under Berenson, um, they were just a team that was able to reload every year. Before that was a thing that was a regular occurrence, sort of, you know, NCAA wide. Right, there are teams that can do that now. There is a lot of talent out there now to come into college hockey, and for a long time there wasn't. You know, you'd see Boston College would reload, maybe BU, Minnesota, you know, and and certainly Michigan. I think that that's starting to happen again. And uh, uh, you know, Mel Pearson, the coach there, uh, was an assistant or an associate head coach under under Red Berenson for a long time, and um, and it, it's exciting to watch him change that program a bit, uh, to to change the play of that program a little bit, um, and to take everything that he's learned as a coach his entire career and make it his own. Um, but the one thing that he's really never had to change is the way they recruit. They're always able to get good talent and, mm-hmm. um, and you know, Mel's just one of the nicest guys and was primary, you know, was really, um, primary to their recruiting back in the day anyway. And, and so, yeah, I think that they, I think that Michigan might be a team that is somebody to reckon with right from the get go. And each team last year had such a different personality. You know, when you saw a team succeed, it was for very different reasons. And, you know, it, so I really don't know, you know, um, if that is going to be the kind of thing that carries over into this season, um, especially because of the way last season ended. I mean, it was, it has been jarring, right? Like suddenly you're playing big 10 playoff hockey, you know, in Michigan. I mean, look, they, they swept Michigan state three Oh three Oh in two games. And they're, they look like they were on top of the world. And I thought, you know, they're probably going to win the big 10. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly there is no more hockey. Right. And so, and who knows, you know, how, how the overall, Affect uh, you know the, the, this this whole this whole existential crisis is going to affect some of these kids and, and how it affected them, you know, in, in the off season. I mean, I really don't know how that's going to shake out. Right? I hate to to be so indecisive, but I think we are starting a, a hockey season in a way that we never have before. Yeah, it's well, just so much in the air. Life right now is just full of unknowns. So it's it how, is. Do, how do you predict the it hockey is. season uh, in in midst right. of uh, what we're all living through? Uh, right now. Right. Uh, but I do think if you want to put money on Michigan, I don't think it's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know there are teams, every team, every year loses some of their key guys uh, to graduation or, or to the pro ranks or, or whatnot. And I know Wisconsin, Alex Turcott and Keandre Miller right. uh, are, are oh, gone. Yeah. Are the, who are some of the other big losses for the conference, uh, for the teams in the conference? And I throw Arizona State into the mix, Prince and Pashnak gone. Now that's, you know, their captain yeah. uh, and their leader the last lo- little while, too. I'm going to sound really terrible. I haven't really thought that far ahead. Okay. Um, I really haven't. I mean, I was like, oh, crap, I really need to start thinking about hockey again. And, boy, hockey feels like it was 25 years ago. It does. Um, I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, so, um, I, and, and also, and again, right, and this is again, going to sound incredibly wishy-washy. I do not know, right. Like some of those guys that are gone, um, either through, through having graduated out or having left early, I don't know what kind of the impact that would be on. I can, I can predict what kind of an impact it might be on a team in a normal year. Right. But I, this might be the kind of year where you see a breakout performance from a player that you never thought you would before. And you might see returning guys that were rock solid and, and are just not, you know, that are just really struggling. Um, but I haven't really looked, I haven't really looked at the overall who's coming back, who's coming in, 
I am not going to lie. I am not there yet, man. I was <laughs> not expecting November 13th. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, you know what? I can look at that in December. <laughs> I know. I, I was feeling the same way. But uh, all right. Well, November 13th, I guess that gives us a little time. I know there's uh, big things <laughs> happening earlier in November uh, in uh, the United States that, uh, well, that <laughs> yeah, people around the world another... are going to be paying attention to. And then we'll be able to focus. Yeah, and then we'll be able to focus a little bit more on college hockey. Paula, as always, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate this too. Hey, if you want to talk to me like after November third and before November thirteenth, I'm probably going to be a better guest. Excellent, we'll do that, Paula. Really appreciate making some time though for the Pipeline Show again. Thanks a lot. You take care. Paula Weston from USCHO last week talking to me about the uh, intended startup. Uh, for the Big Ten and some of the hurdles they're going to have to clear to pull that off successfully. Uh, We also talked about Arizona State uh, joining the league, uh, basically unofficially for this season anyway, and uh, a quick mention of Long Island University. Uh, And since then, uh, LIU has announced that they are going to play, much like Arizona State's going to fit in, slide in, if you will, with the Big Ten Well, the Sharks are going to do the same with Atlantic Hockey uh, with a November 13th uh, start for that conference. So uh, news there for the newest NCAA Division I program uh, for men's hockey. So they're looking to uh, get going here in the next, uh, what is that, just over, just under a month now. And more recently, the uh, the big news today for the NCAA, uh, today being Friday, October 16th, the NCHC has announced December 1st as their start date. And interestingly, they're going to do it with a bubble. They call it a pod, but basically a bubble that's going to be in Omaha in for three weeks in early December. They're going to play a bunch of games right then and uh, then take uh, the Christmas break off. And then in the uh, second portion of the conference slate will be in the new year. And as the press release says, that'll take place in all home NCHC venues. So interesting that uh, the NCHC will take on the bubble format. It worked uh, certainly for the NHL and uh, to a large degree for the NBA as well. So we'll see if uh, the NCHC can pull that off. It's only a three-week thing, but each team's going to play like 10 games inside that three weeks instead of like six games, uh, which would be a normal three-week schedule uh, for Division One hockey. So uh, that, that's an interesting uh, decision for the NCHC, and hopefully, hopefully it works and everything goes off without a hitch. All right, let's get to a conversation I had about uh, three days ago, four days ago, I guess, with Glenn Erickson from Dub Network. Uh, At that point, we were talking about, well, when do we think the uh, WHL is actually going to be able to start this year? And then there was the big news uh, the day after. Uh, But I wanted to share that conversation with Glenn, and we'll do that in its entirety next here on the Pipeline Show. John Redis steals the puck. He's down the right side. Puck's following him around tonight. Ennis is in over the blue line. He gets away from Aceman. Walks in. John Redis backhand shot. And Saver makes the save. Another shot. He scores! John Redis is fifth goal here tonight. Oh, what a tricky one. Wild one was. Hi, this is Tyler Ennis of the Menacenet Tigers, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. Well, it's midnight, then rival Troubled Monk Brew of the Week sure is a tasty one. Bud, what is it? Bucktooth Belgian White, a light and citrusy, flavorful beer. This Belgian White is a perfect patio pint. Try it with a freshly cut orange to brighten up your already sunny day. Player comparable, Patrick Kane knows what season to turn it on and has splashes of brilliance. 
Troubled Monk, visit the tap room in Red Deer or get free same-day home delivery in Alberta by placing an order at troubledmonk.com. Troubled Monk, craft beverages worth sharing. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Back on the Pipeline Show, and we're going to have an in-the-dub segment. Of course, those brought to you by our friends at dubnetwork.ca. You can stay up to date on everything happening around the Western Hockey League. There's not a whole lot going on, but every once in a while, some news trickles out, and you can get that uh, daily dose of the dub sent right to your inbox. Uh, subscribe to them, dubnetwork.ca. And my uh, guest is Glenn Erickson, who is a contributor at Dub Network. Uh, Glenn, welcome back to the Pipeline Show, bud. How are you? Yeah, we're doing fine, Guy. It's uh, yeah, nice to have an opportunity to talk a little hockey with you uh, these days. Thanks for the invitation. No problem. Uh, let's maybe start with a quick reflection of uh, the NHL draft last week, and from a WHL perspective, boy, that first round ended up being pretty good. Seven uh, picks out of the WHL, which was the most of any league. Uh, so I, I think you'd have to be pretty happy if you were a, a follower of the WHL. I think so. Uh, there were, you know, a handful of us who were, were sort of talking in advance of the draft, and we wondered uh, if it, you know, might in fact, um, you know, be a bit of a down year for the Dub, uh, you know, with with some of the other leagues across North America and and some of the international uh, uh, players really making a statement. We didn't have a top five or a top ten, um, you know, in the Dub this year, um, so. Overall, looking at the numbers, Guy, I go back maybe 15 years, you know, back to our hockey's future days, um, you know, as, as writers. Um, and over the course of those 15 years, the dub has averaged 31 players selected at each NHL draft. And, uh, you know, last week it was, it was 28 players in total, seven in the first round. And, and coincidentally, those numbers match up exactly, um, with what took place in the hockey league draft. So, uh, I think exciting for the Western Hockey League, uh, you know, seven uh, players in the first round, uh, and a good day for a good day for Canadian talent, that's for sure. Well, and a, a good showing right at the end of that first round with uh, Jake Neighbors and Ridley Gregg and Ozzy Weisblatt all being taken uh, after the uh, you know from that 26 to 31 spot. All three of those guys could have slipped to the second round, and we would have been talking about only four players from the WHL. So. Funny how uh, that bar, a pretty fine line between success and maybe concern. Sure, great point. And and you know I don't think I don't think either one of us would have been surprised if if uh, you know neighbors Greg or or Weisblatt would have went into uh, the second round. By the same token, uh, you know I think that you know they're they're deserving of first round consideration. Well, but uh, yeah, but how about Connor Zary? Um, you know, Calgary trading down twice to, to nab him at number 24. Uh, you know, I think that's a great pick for the Flames. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's just, uh, again, terrific for, for the Kamloops organization. And Connor Zary is a guy who uh, has worked pretty darn hard the last couple seasons. I, I agree with you. I think uh, what Calgary did in that first round was brilliant for them. If they would have taken Zary with their original pick, which was, what, 17th, I think, they were sitting in? Yeah, I think 19, yeah. yeah. Nobody would have blinked, right? I mean, that's a reasonable spot to take Connor Zary. The fact they were still able to probably get their guy, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. uh, but add a couple of future picks uh, in for the um, the middle rounds, I think that's awesome uh, asset management for the Calgary Flames. So uh, kudos to them. I thought that was great. 
For sure. You know, I think it would have been needed had it been kind of a normal draft. We we probably would have seen some footage from uh, from the trade floor of, you know, the general yeah. managers walking back and forth or, or the representatives and that type of thing. But again, I think a great get for Calgary and, uh, you know, just very interesting how that all evolved. Was there a WHL player that uh, was eventually drafted, but not at the time uh, when you thought he was he was available longer than you thought he would be? You know, that's that's a good question. I think for for my money, um, you know, a, a fella that I got to see a little bit about back in my, my days residing in Kelowna was uh, you know, Justin Sorda for the Vancouver Giants. So uh, when eighty seventh, I um he was very surprised. He was, was a he was dominant um in a couple of playoff rounds the season that the Giants went to the Western Hockey League final against the Prince Albert Raiders. You know, that was his sixteen year old season and he was just an absolute bull. Um, you know, some folks have said that, uh, you know, this past regular season, he, he maybe wasn't, you know, as, as dominant, but, uh, I was, I was surprised, you know, Florida got him in the third round with, um, with the 87th pick. Um, I wouldn't have been surprised if he gone, you know, uh, a little earlier. Um, you know, another guy that, that I had sort of kept my eye on, I was curious was, uh, Damon Hunt, a Moose Jaw Warriors defenseman. And, you know, that it can be a tough draft year for a defenseman when you're, you're playing on a, uh, a team that is not likely uh, to make the postseason, and, and you know, and of course, Damon was injured seriously. I, I think in Edmonton, if I'm not mistaken, yep. the first week of yep. December, uh, um, a severe skate cut that required surgery, and you know, he had played 23 games to that point. He managed to get into another five after um, recovering from the injury. But uh, I wondered, had Damon Hunt maybe played 60 games, uh, you know, would would he have uh, you know maybe garnered some attention a little earlier? Uh, he went third uh, in the third round, 65th overall to Minnesota. Uh, you know, those are a couple of guys I wonder about. But uh, you know what? They're going to have their day. They're going to have their opportunity to to compete for for a position uh, with the National Hockey League team, and, and really that's what it's all about. That was really tough for Damon Hunt that the season was the playoffs were canceled. Uh, obviously, Moose Jaw wasn't going to the postseason. But the World U18s would have been a big opportunity for him because he would have been on that team for sure, uh, and he would have been 100% by then. And that's a, sh- a big showcase event right before the uh, the draft, and then you've got the NHL Combine. All of that wiped out really hurt a guy uh, like Damon Hunt. And I agree with you. I think uh, that was a guy who uh, probably more than most in the draft class were was you know a victim of uh, the this whole global pandemic and what that meant to his his draft stock. Uh, speaking of which, you got the 2021 draft. Uh, I mean, cross our fingers that goes at the end of June in 2021, but should be another good one for the WHL. There's some high-end uh, talent out of the league uh, available in 2021. I think so, and and you know we just have got to get back on uh, on the ice really uh, because we want to see these players flourish. We want to see them you know to continue to develop. I I feel badly um, given the current situation for the players who who kind of age out. Um, and and their opportunities are either limited or lost. Uh, you know, think back to the 2019 National Hockey League draft. You'd have a lot of players there. You know, they've got a two-year window to earn a, an entry-level contract, and you know they're not on the ice right now. So you know they. Uh, um, I don't know if the term their their growth is stunted makes makes sense, but you know, my point being. Um, you know, these are players that would have been excited. Some have been signed you know, since that 2019 draft, of course. But, uh, you know, there's there's players that uh, still have some work to do to earn a contract. You know, in addition to the guys that were drafted last uh, last week, you know, they're going to be very excited to get back on the ice. But, of course, it's part of the de- developmental curve. 
the international opportunities are huge uh, for for these you know really talented players. And yeah, looking forward to the National Hockey League draft um, June of 2021. You know, are things going to be back to normal by then? Boy, I don't know. Uh, are we looking at another virtual draft? Uh, you know, can we shrink the eight-hour day two program to, to maybe four or five hours? Yeah. Hard to say, but uh, you know, you're right. Uh, all of these, all these players, um, just the the development is is significantly impacted by not being able to be on the ice. Some of those uh, notable WHLers for 2021: Carson Lambos in Winnipeg, Cole Sillinger in your backyard uh, there with the Medicine Hat Tigers, and Logan Stankoven in uh, Kamloops. The Old Kings have a couple in Dylan Gunther and Sebastian Kosa. Um, so lots of talent uh, out of the WHL for 2021. The question now is, will we have a season? Uh, Glenn Erickson's my guest from Dub Network. Uh, the WHL is pinpointed uh, early December and hoping to get training camp in, going in uh, mid-November, which is basically a month from now. Uh, I'm not very optimistic, uh, Glenn, but uh, from your perspective, do you think this goes off uh, in early December? And if not, then when? Great question. Um, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not optimistic. Um, I think that the Western Hockey League faces tremendous challenges in comparison to, to Ontario and Quebec, um, simply because they're dealing with, with so many jurisdictions. And, uh, uh, you know, consensus can be a difficult thing to, uh, <laughs> to come up with on the home front. Uh, yeah, for any of our mm-hmm. listeners out there who have been married for many, many, many years, try getting six <laughs> jurisdictions, different levels of government, uh, 22 hockey teams, and everybody to get on the same page. It's going to require, uh, you know, some some ingenuity, some some belief, some confidence, uh, a, a great plan. Um, think even about parents and the decisions that they have to make. Um, uh, the players, you've got to think that these youngsters. Uh, you know, I know as a teenager back in the day, I felt like I was a pretty, you know, pretty bulletproof. You know, and maybe that comes with not having a lot of life experience, but. You know, these guys want to be out there. They're competitors. They're competitive, but there are going to be conversations at home. The telling part for me in all of this came in August, um, and, and being a little bit long in the tooth, I've had the opportunity, I think like you, Guy, to speak with a lot of parents, uh, you know, parents who maybe had some experience as players in the Western Hockey League, and now it's their, their sons that we're watching. But um, when a number of these parents sort of shared with me in August that they had been told by their Western Hockey League teams to have their sons begin school at home Mm. as opposed to in the Western Hockey League cities, you had to know that that October 2nd wasn't going to happen. December Mm. 4th, I just think that there's, there's really a lot that has to come together. I I think there's too much fear in, in many of the jurisdictions as well. Um, I don't see it happening. I I think I'm really going to be missing junior hockey come December. Yeah, I I agree with you. And, you know, you mentioned how different it is for the WHL. You got the border crossing. You got five teams in the states, two different states. OHL similar, uh, but only one province and two states. Uh, whereas, uh, with the WHL, you got four provinces as well. But I wonder how much, um, you know, both of those two leagues are kind of watching to see what happens with the Q. Uh, two weeks in, they've got three teams shut down already. I, I can't say that, uh, what's happening in, the, in, at least in the province of Quebec, the maritime teams seem to be okay, but, um, I, I can't say that the, we can look at the queue and say, look, we can, we can play and then everything's going to be okay. Yeah. I think it's, it's again, a, a very challenging situation. Obviously, um, you know, your representatives from the Western Hockey League board of governors are, are in constant contact with, with their colleagues in Ontario and Quebec, you know, exchanging ideas and, uh, 
you know, I think it was, was Bruce Hamilton who, who told me back in the summer, he really felt bad for commissioner Rob Robison, um, you know, thinking that there might be an opportunity to get a week or two away from hockey and relax and recharge. But with everything that's been going on, it's basically been a 24 seven proposition for a lot of these guys having to be on the phone and in communication and just trying to work together to find a way to make it happen. And then, you know, I, I respect the, the time and energy and the commitment that a lot of these key people and, you know, the leagues across the country are, are, are putting in to make it happen. But I really, really think they're up against it. Uh, Glenn, there was news uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a new lawsuit that the CHL is going to have to deal with. Not, not them alone, though, because it includes the NHL and the American Hockey League and the ECHL. Uh, Kobe Moore, one of the, uh, the lead plaintiffs, uh, suing the league again for, I believe it's to uh, restrict players that there there's too many restrictions on uh, on players uh, in North American hockey. What was your immediate reaction when you heard the news of that? Oh boy, just another body blow for junior hockey. You know, hasn't this this has been going on for for a while? I think there was the the lawsuit centered around the you know concussions and, and these types of things, and then uh, this concept of of um, the viability of a minimum wage and um, you know, there. I think nationally there are are members of the media who you know like to get on these stories um, you know, when it's an opportunity to sort of uh, take the CHL to task. And um, you know, it's there used to be a saying, um, you know, that you know negative publicity or you know something to that effect that is better than no publicity. But I think in these cases, right. it's just. Uh, it's just a blight, uh, really. You know, at the end of the day, I think when you got, you know, look at a player like Kobe Moore, who I got to see, um, you know, a pretty physical uh, style of hockey, um, had some success in Kamloops, you know, played for a couple of teams last year, um, you know, through trades, you know, as a 20. Um, we used to joke at the rinks um, back in the day that when you look at the depth of certain hockey teams, you'd point to a player and say, oh, you know, he's a plumber. Well, you know, Kobe, you, you had four years in the dub and, um, you know, four years of, of post-secondary experience, you might become a successful plumber. Um, you know, and I say that tongue in cheek, but at the end of the day, I think there are rewards, uh, you know, for some of these players and the families who make the commitment to junior hockey in Canada to, to the CHL teams. And, you know, having things dialed in to take advantage of that scholarship program really can set a lot of players up for the future. And, and if, if hockey is an important part of your life, even at 20, 21, 23 years old, um, you know, youth sports hockey is, is, you know, perhaps the best kept secret in, in the country. I think it's just, it's just tremendous. Uh, some of these kids can show up in the dub at 15 years old and, mm-hmm. you know, play hockey until they're, you know, 22, 23 years old, uh, you know, with their peers, with colleagues, because the majority of youth sports players that, that I see nationwide come from the CHL. Um, you know, there seems like there's a, a great compensation package there. And, uh, you know, I struggle a little bit when I, when I see, uh, you know, players that just, you know, kind of want to, want to backtrack and, and continue to harp on the things that maybe they, maybe they, they didn't get that they think they deserve. Um, you know, I'm a believer in that scholarship program. I, I guess it tells you where I stand. Well, I am as well. I think your point is well made. And, and in fact, with in Kobe Moore's case, he played five years in the WHL. He'd have five years of education uh, paid for uh, by the WHL. And and uh, you know you can 
play hockey while you're at the, taking the classes at, at and with uh, U Sports, wherever he decided to enroll, he could play five more years of developmental hockey. That'd be ten years uh, of developmental hockey before his pro career starts. Uh, not a lot of players get that opportunity. I, I question the motives uh, behind um, uh, lawsuits like this. Uh, that's for sure. What does it cost a family? Guy? I apologize. You know, my my children are, are adults and beyond school. What's it cost to go to university for five years? You know, is that a hundred grand? Uh, I don't know. Pretty good compensation, isn't it? You know, and and if you've worked your tail off through junior hockey and and you know maybe there's some benefit there for mom and dad who've likely been supporters at different levels. Um, you know, if they're off the hook to some degree for, you know, eighty to $100,000, um, you know, in, in terms of post-secondary education, uh, you know, I, I, I think I see some win-win. Uh, absolutely. I think it provides uh, players with a, a great opportunity, even if hockey isn't their long-term path to success, uh, and it's something outside of the sport that uh, that they turn into a career. I, I Mark Russell is a former Medicine Tiger. He told me, he went into the WHL not because he thought he would have a future as a NHLer, but to get the scholarship. That was his goal. And uh, now he's uh, making use of that, uh, playing youth sports. And um, I can't remember if it was Evander Kane or it might be Wayne Simmons, uh, one of the uh, players uh, involved in that uh, alliance at the NHL level, uh, promoting uh, black players in hockey. His point was this is a way to get players, minority players, uh, college degrees is to get them into the CHL. Um, so it seems like there's a, a lot of people who uh, overlook the benefits of, of playing uh, in the Canadian Hockey League and what that scholarship package means to players. Yeah, I don't think we hear enough about the success stories. I think that's that's very frustrating. I think there's too much the negative side that is maybe highlighted. Um, you know, I, there are tremendous success stories and have been for for many many decades. Glenn, I really appreciate your time. Hopefully uh, the next time we chat, it's uh, in a rink watching a game. Sure enough, yeah, with a steaming cup of coffee and you know maybe tapping our toes <laughs> to keep our feet warm. That would be terrific. Thanks for taking the time here, Glenn. I appreciate it. You bet. Keep doing what you're doing. I sure appreciate it, Guy. All right, that was Glenn Erickson. That was earlier this week as we were chatting about, well, looking back at the NHL draft from a WHL perspective, uh, but also uh, chatting about, uh, you know, the potential of the WHL season starting up, uh, but also about the, the the new lawsuit. We chatted about that at the end of that conversation. Some other things in there as well. Of course, the big news, and we'll get to that in the final uh, segment of today's show, uh, the WHL has confirmed January 8th is uh, not just a target, but a firm start date. Uh, so about uh, just under three months from now, we will have WHL hockey to some degree. Some of the logistics still to be uh, worked out and, and finalized, but uh, the league sounds uh, dead set on starting on January 8th, and we'll get to that uh, conference call uh, coming up in the uh, final segment. But thanks to Glenn for uh, coming on the show earlier this week, and uh, I, f- I feel a little bit bad that some of that conversation is now irrelevant, uh, but a lot of it is still worth uh, hearing, so I wanted to share the whole thing just really an indication of how quickly things have changed. I mean, part of that conversation, we were talking about the queue. Now, the queue has uh, shut down for at least until October 28th, and uh, sounds like a lot of people there not too optimistic that it's going to start up anytime soon. So maybe we'll see the queue uh, shut down until January as well. I don't know if it'll take that long, uh, but we'll see. All right, we do have one more segment to get to, and it will be a bit longer because it's going to be that conference call. I, I edited it down, so it's not like, it, I mean, it was 45 minutes or so, and I got chopped it down. It's about a half an hour now. 
Uh, you're going to hear a lot of uh, media across Western Canada, one fella out of uh, Portland as well. Uh, a number of voices that you've heard on the program in the past as guests, and of course, Commissioner Ron Robison, as well as uh, Director of Communications for the League, uh, Taylor Roca. All of that coming up in the final segment of this week's episode here on the Pipeline Show. That's next. Up now to DeBrus, gains a Tiger line, shoots, scored! Jake DeBrus does it again in overtime! Hey, it's Jake DeBrus of the Swift Current Broncos, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. Troubled Monk Brew of the Week. Hey, this one's great on ice. Why is that, bud? Troubled Monk Troubled Tea. This surprising beverage is low in sugar, zero carbonation, and has an unmistakable real tea taste. Alberta's first and only hard iced tea. Player comparable, Jack Eichel. Silky smooth and super skilled, but a little softer and enjoyed by all. Troubled Monk, visit the tap room in Red Deer or get free same-day home delivery in Alberta by placing an order at troubledmonk.com. Troubled Monk craft beverages worth sharing you're listening to the pipeline show with gee flaming i know that dude all right back on the pipeline show for the uh, final segment of this week's uh, real weird episode two interviews from last week uh, one from earlier this week and then this segment which is uh, going to be the uh, broadcast of the a WHL conference call, which uh, went late this week. Uh, you're going to hear a number of uh, media people from across Western Canada and one fella out of uh, Portland asking questions of Commissioner Ron Robison. Uh, Taylor Roca from the league is going to introduce uh, each uh, media person with their question. It's a long call. It was originally 45 minutes. I've chopped it down to about uh, half an hour uh, without taking out uh, the essential parts. All right, so let's get right to it. Uh, here is Ron Robinson at the start of the conference call about the WHL's return to play. We are very excited to announce yesterday that uh, our regular season will start on Friday, January the 8th. That is a firm start date, not a tentative date. And uh, as we continue to work with the various governments and health authorities within our jurisdictions on some of the final touches, I guess, if you will, and other issues that we need to address with them, um, we will continue to uh, do that in order to finalize details around our schedule. We're making very good progress. Our health and safety protocols have been well received, but there are, uh, as, as everyone is well aware, uh, we're different stages in different uh, provinces and states within our region, and we're going, we're going to need some additional time to work out some of those details before we can release um, <clears throat> information on our actual schedule for the season. Um, we are excited to have all of our players returning to our locations after Christmas to begin their training and and uh, final preparations for the season, including some exhibition games uh, leading into our opening game on Friday, January the 8th. And um, we'll have some additional information to you as soon as we can. We envision right now that we'll probably be mid to late November before we can announce more details on our, on our schedule. Um, in addition, we're very, very pleased to uh, add to our team uh, Dr. Duran Naidu uh, from Edmonton. Dr. Naidu was the uh, chief medical uh, officer in, in Edmonton for the uh, NHL hub, and we're looking forward to getting his expertise and learning from the experience the NHL had um, 
in Edmonton and also uh, uh, getting his assistance with our discussions with the uh, with the health authorities in, uh, in uh, each of our jurisdictions. So we look forward to your questions today. And again, thank you for attending. Thank you very much, Ron. Uh, all right, we'll start the question and answer here. Uh, I've got a nice list going already and we'll start it off with a question from Kelly Moore in Winnipeg. Go ahead, Kelly. Thank you very much, Taylor. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Robinson, for doing this. Uh, I guess the first thing, I know you say more details will be coming out about the schedule, uh, but under normal circumstances, it would probably leave you somewhere around 35 to 40 games if you're going to end the season when it normally would. Is that kind of what you're looking for to achieve uh, with the January 8th start date? We have a start date of January 8th and a concluding date of May 2nd. So that will actually allow us to play a maximum of 50 games during that period of time. The number of games will be determined as we work our way through the next uh, number of weeks, but uh, we can play up to a maximum of 50 games. I know, I can't remember what the exact date was when we spoke with you last, uh, but the I believe the statement from you was that you were looking to have somewhere near 50% capacity uh, seating in the stands if you were going to start the season. Is that still the goal you're looking to achieve? That's our objective, uh, but we recognize that ultimately that will be determined by the health authorities uh, through our discussions with them. And uh, those discussions are ongoing, and we're looking forward to uh, getting some clarification on that soon. Um, but the number may be significantly lower than 50%, just given the, uh, the health restrictions that apply in various provinces and states currently. We'll move down my list here to Cleve Deansaw in Victoria. Go ahead, Cleve. Yeah, I guess one of the things you're working through um, in BC with the BC division is the cohort situation in phase three of the return to play here, meaning the five teams will have to be separated into cohorts of uh, no more than four teams, which means uh, they'll have to be broken up into groups of three and two, and then a two-week quarantine break. Uh, what's that? Uh, have you talked to the teams? They're going to have to play each other eight or nine times straight in the two in the two team cohort. Uh, how odd is that going to be? And is it just one of the things that's there's no getting around? Well, it's a good example of where um, the current position of the government is and health authorities in BC. Um, we are going to allow additional time. Of course, we have a little bit more time to work with with respect to what that might look like when we begin in January. We're hoping to make some progress in that area with the. Uh, with the BC Health Authorities, but in the event that that cohort uh, position is, is still uh, in place in BC, then we will have to adapt to that, and then that will dictate to some extent what our schedule will look like. Uh, we will now take a question from Reed Wilkins in Edmonton. Reed, go ahead. Thanks, Taylor. Hi, Ron. Thanks for doing this. I'm just wondering about things like travel and hotels. Um, you know, maybe players can't stay in the same room maybe they got to be spaced out more on a bus Does, is that going to lead maybe to more buses and, and elevated costs is that a possible you know impact of all this I know there are probably still things to plan but I know t talking to teams in other leagues they've had to they've, re they've really worried about extra costs from travel and accommodations well it's a good question we haven't got into the details yet of our schedule but uh, we're certainly going to try and minimize first of all overnight stays uh, reduce that to the uh, to the to the uh, to the extent that we can, and um, and uh, one of the things, is, as, you're, as you're aware from the release, is that we've taken steps already to realign the league into four divisions. Uh, <clears throat> some of the divisions are already in place, but we've moved Swift Current into Saskatchewan uh, and to the East Division, um, so that we have a um, you know the provincial boundaries will be as far as we go with respect to travel, and that's really designed to try and 
minimize the um, the um, uh, the risks associated with uh, interprovincial travel and so forth. So uh, we are also going to, again, as I mentioned, uh, uh, look at how we can minimize the number of overnight stays to avoid uh, hotels and uh, avoid those types of situations during the course of the season. And also the, the dates you're looking at here, is is the plan to have a full postseason, like the same playoff you've always done in the past, at least with the number of teams? We haven't even got to discussion on playoffs yet. Of course, that'll depend on the uh, Memorial Cup and uh, the staging of the Memorial Cup and, and the ability for us to have uh, full conference, senior conference playoffs with the border opening and so forth, whether that will be in place at that time. We're going to have to make that decision later on in the season. And uh, so we haven't really determined what the playoff format would look like, if it would be the traditional uh, four rounds of playoffs or whether we would have uh, divisional play only at that particular stage. So that'll be something we'll determine at a later date. Uh, we'll now take a question from Adam Cook. Adam, go ahead. I'm assuming you get plenty of feedback from uh, the teams on, on, on just what they're dealing from a financial standpoint, but how concerned are you about the teams kind of making it through this pandemic? Is it possible that we could see some teams, I don't know, take a break, fold? What do you think? Well, it's a very difficult uh, circumstances that we find ourselves in. Uh, you know, from an ownership perspective, I admire their <clears throat> their commitment to the players to uh, to get the season started and to uh, work our way through this. But there's going to be significant financial losses for all of our clubs, without question, because um, we know that we're going to be dealing with limited capacity, far lower than what we normally are accustomed to, and that will uh, cause some challenges. I don't believe we're at risk of losing any franchises, uh, um, but it will be a difficult uh, situation for our teams to work their way through. Perfect. Thank you, Adam. Uh, we'll now take a question from Paul Danzer in Portland. Go ahead, Paul. Hey, Ron. Thanks for doing this. Um, I'm going to change the subject like I did three, four months ago and ask if there's any update on the Winterhawks ownership you can give us. And specifically, have any offers made it to the Board of Governors? Or have they all been still with the receivership? Uh, the matter's still with the receiver. We wish we were further along, quite frankly, in that area. Um, but we're hoping that uh, we'll make some progress very soon and uh, be in a position to uh, to uh, have a new ownership group in Portland. And that's our objective, is to make it happen as quickly as possible. Have there been any viable offers that you're aware of? Or how many, how many um, serious offers have there been in the last... Over the six months. Yeah, there's been several uh, uh, offers made. Uh, there's been uh, uh, groups expressing strong interest, but just haven't uh, uh, reached the level that we need in order to qualify as owners uh, within the Western Hockey League uh, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, COVID does present challenges as well, of course, as we're well aware, and uh, and uh, that has uh, probably more than anything contributed to the delay. But we're uh, we're optimistic that something will happen here soon, and. Uh, and uh, we're looking forward to having a new ownership in place uh, in Portland. What happens if nothing happens before January uh, the start date? Well, the responsibility is with the currently with the receiver to ensure the club continues to operate, and uh, and uh, we're working very closely with the club uh, and the management to uh, to make sure that uh, there's no disruption in in uh, in the Winterhawks franchise. Uh, we'll now take a question from Britton Gray in Saskatoon. Go ahead, Britton. Uh, hi, I'm just uh, wondering, the uh, the East Division kind of presents an extra challenge in the fact that it does have the interprovincial travel. So what's the talks been like in 
to with the health officials in those jurisdictions in Saskatchewan and uh, Manitoba? Uh, the health officials in Saskatchewan and Manitoba have been very, uh, very uh, positive, very cooperative, very uh, respectful of the position we find ourselves in with only two teams in Manitoba, of course. Uh, they are uh, isolated somewhat and would need to play uh, interprovincial games with Saskatchewan. Uh, that's one of the areas that we're working through and, and is one of the reasons we can't be in a position today to announce any details on the schedule is we still need to obtain approval for the interprovincial travel between Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Uh, we're at different stages in our discussions with each of the health authorities in, uh, in, in those provinces, but expect uh, a decision on that soon so that we can move forward with uh, scheduling games uh, uh, with one division, East Division, including uh, teams from both Saskatchewan and Manitoba. It might be too early in the process here because you just announced a start date, but we've seen it at the NFL and stuff, what happens when there's someone on the team tests positive. Has there been a decision about what will happen if a player on a WHL team tests positive during the season? Our protocols address all of that, and uh, we'll be prepared for that. I think as we've witnessed in the Quebec League, that the virus does come uh, certainly occurs from time to time and we're going to have to address that and we'll be prepared to adjust the schedules and to um, isolate teams as required as we work our way through that. But uh, our protocols do address uh, what, it, what, uh, what steps we take in the event that uh, a positive test occurs. Uh, we'll now take a question from Corey Pronman with The Athletic. Hi, Ron. Uh, my question is um, if there are some jurisdictions that uh, say that uh, fans would not be allowed in a rink. Would those owners in those jurisdictions still be in favor of going forward? And just as and related, if you have some situations where certain jurisdictions are creating significantly more revenue than others, do you have a, a, a system where you might have to engage in some sort of revenue sharing? Uh, first of all, on the uh, question of, I guess we're going to see what those jurisdictions look like. At the, I can tell you that in each of these six jurisdictions uh, in the Western Hockey League, they're all at different stages, um, all have different uh, uh, caseloads, and we monitor that very closely. That's something we'll take into consideration as we move forward in the decision-making as to what the season will look like. Uh, we've had discussion around the maximum number of games and the minimum number of games teams would play under those circumstances, but it's a little premature for me to comment on whether or not uh, uh, how that's going to play out. We're optimistic based on our discussions with the uh, health authorities in all locations that we'll get their full cooperation. Whether we'll have spectators at the end of the day, um, I'm not sure, but um, but certainly they understand that we're a spectator-dependent league and, uh, and that revenue stream is extremely important to our teams. Uh, as far as revenue sharing is concerned, uh, no, we're dealing with it more on a jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction jurisdiction basis. Uh, uh, we'll be um, uh, asking for support in those centers and those regions or those provinces or states where we are not getting the capacity that we need to uh, keep our teams in a, in a position to be viable. And we're working through that on a um, province, uh, it's on state-by-state -state basis. Ryan McCracken in Medicine Hat. Go ahead, Ryan. My first question is uh, similar to the, the BC cohorts, Alberta, which I'm sure you know, is a cohort of 50 with a 14-day non-participation period. One thing we've been seeing with some of the leagues from out here is uh, sort of series play. So two teams play each other for a couple times over the course of a week or two then take a 14-day practice break, essentially, where they can't compete and then do that with another team. Is that something that the WHL has considered? Well, we've, we've expressed our concern uh, to the health authorities on those restrictions. It it's makes it difficult for us to schedule under the, on that basis, and I think there's some uh, movement in, a, in, a, in a, to give us some more flexibility, if you will. 
uh, in that area. And I believe there'll be an announcement soon in that regard in Alberta. So we, we do need some additional flexibility in order to accommodate our scheduling. It's uh, somewhat unique as well as the uh, scope of our uh, uh, teams, uh, the number of people that travel with the teams to to the um, number of personnel, officials, minor officials, etc., that have to conduct games. So our situation is a little unique in that the scope of our league is is maybe um, much different than certainly uh, minor hockey or other levels of the game. And is the the current plan then to have the schedules exist in these specific division by division? Is that uh, like ironclad, or is there a potential that you know before you announce a season, it could open up to be east and west? No, we've committed to the entire regular season being played within the provincial boundaries. So in the case of Alberta teams, uh, they will play exclusively, the five Alberta teams will be exclusive um, for the entire season. And then I guess my last question is uh, just looking at the QMJHL, uh, what have you taken away from, from what you've seen from them so far in terms of what you can apply uh, in terms of safety protocols and that sort of thing? Well, we're in constant contact with the Canadian Hockey League and, you know, certainly directly with the Beth Major Junior League as to how they're managing through different circumstances. We have compared protocols in preparation for the season. Uh, we are uh, certainly learning from how they are addressing different situations in their league, uh, especially as they work through uh, not only positive tests with certain teams, but also the uh, various heightened areas of concern in red zones and certain and how they've been able to respond to that. So that's something we all have to be prepared for and, uh, and adjust if, uh, if need be, if that does occur in our particular region. Uh, we'll now take a question from Nicholas Frew with CBC Saskatchewan. Hi. Um, I know we, the question I have right now, I know we've kind of touched on it already, but what happens if fans aren't allowed to watch the games in the arena? Well, uh, that will be a decision ultimately that's made by the health authorities. And uh, we will have a, a streaming service available for all the games. So the games will be broadcast and available to everyone um, in the event that we're not able to accommodate spectators. I know in Quebec, the province was able to bail, uh, get some money to some of the uh, teams. Um, is that something that the WHL is looking at in the different provincial and state governments? Well, we won't be making a request for funding unless our capacity for spectators is lower than we anticipated. Um, we have uh, set some objectives for that, and, and uh, it's, um, <clears throat> it's all dependent upon where we land with respect to uh, the, um, the health authorities and what would be permitted in that jurisdiction. All right, we will now head to Derek Taylor in Regina. Go ahead, Derek. Ron, independent of what the Memorial Cup does, is your intent to crown a WHL champion through playoffs? Well, the, the really that will come down to whether we're you know, the border opening or not. Uh, the U.S.-Canadian border issue is, is significant because we have five U.S.-based teams, as everyone's aware, and to develop a, you know, a full playoff with all 22 member clubs involved, uh, we need to have the border open uh, for that purpose. So in the event that we're not successful in the border opening and there is a cancellation of the Memorial Cup, which we hope doesn't happen, uh, we would have to come up with an alternate format for playoffs, uh, which may include uh, determining or declaring four uh, champions within our divisions. But that's not something we've, we've um, contemplated at this stage. We're hopeful that by uh, May that uh, we can play four rounds of playoffs as we normally do. and then. Uh, well, we'll stay in Saskatchewan. I've got Lucas Punkari in Prince Albert. Go ahead, Lucas. Thanks, Taylor. A uh, couple questions for Ron. Firstly, uh, kind of some people have asked about 
keep an eye on the QMJHL. Just curious as to if you also keep a close eye on A, what's happening in Ontario with Lisa McLeod's comments in regards to OHL can't start unless they cut down a body contact, and B, just what the provincial and two state jurisdictions are doing in regards to returning back to hockey with their junior A leagues like the SJ or the MJ, for example. Well, first of all, we are in constant contact with the um, OHL, the Quebec Major Junior League, and other leagues, quite frankly. The NHL have been very helpful, and we're in discussions with uh, all of the leagues in, uh, in North America on a constant basis to see if we can learn and certainly uh, stay in touch with them on, on some of their challenges as they uh, look to reopen as well. Just in regards, you kind of answered it already. It was just in regards to the uh, MJ and the SJ, but I think you kind of answered it with just talking to the other yeah. North American leagues. We also, uh, yeah, we also monitor uh, what's going on at the uh, other levels of the game, whether it's junior A hockey or midget hockey, and and um, and uh, watch to see how they're doing and, and how successful they are with their uh, with the start of the season. One other question, and I'm assuming this will be something that'll be announced or still being worked on. Just you mentioned hoping to have all the players there after the Christmas break. When regards to import players coming back, or also players crossing the border, is that still something that's still being discussed here as you're getting all the jurisdictions in place? Yes. Uh, with regard to uh, U.S. players and import players, uh, <clears throat> we are working with the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada on um, how we will manage their entry into Canada, and uh, hopefully we'll have some news on that very soon. Uh, to, uh, uh, But we are having to work through a process there, uh, and that is also uh, in, involves uh, making sure that we have the protocols approved in each of the provincial um, uh, in each of the, with the provincial health authorities in Western Canada. We'll head east. I've got a question from Perry Bergson in Brandon. Go yeah. ahead, Perry. Ron, you're obviously dealing with a wildly fluid situation here. You're three months out from a potential start date. Can you explain to me how the first two dates were aspirational and this one's a hard date? Well, we just felt that uh, at some point we needed to um, create some certainty around the start of the season. And uh, we had announced already, as you mentioned, uh, two tentative uh, target dates, if you will. This is not a tentative date. This is a firm date. We are going to start on January 8th. And um, we're, we're pleased and excited because our players will be able to return to our teams and uh, right after Christmas and, uh, and get started with uh, their training with their teams and preparation for the start of the regular season. So. Um, yeah, we're looking forward to it. We, we felt we just really needed to take the next step and and um, and, and put a uh, firm date in place for the start of the regular season. Is there a drop-dead date that the Memorial Cup has to be played by? Uh, we have scheduled the Memorial Cup right now for middle of June, to start of middle, middle of June, so we backed it up essentially one month to give us more time and more runway to work with, if you will, to, to play our regular season in. And um, But that, that determination on the Memorial Cup and playoffs quite frankly, will be done in consultation with the CHL. Just one last one. Have you thought about letting your players go to Junior A if they want to? No, we haven't at this stage. Uh, you know, they seem to be doing well in their locations right now. We've, we've said from a point of view of their own health and safety and education, uh, we think it's important to remain at home during this period of time. And uh, that's another one of our considerations for looking at the January start was from an academic point of view, it just lands a little bit better for the players. Uh, than say than say an earlier start in December or earlier than that. Uh, so we um, <clears throat> we uh, we really have not uh, at this point we've allowed players to train and practice with the junior A teams, but not play games. And but we'll be looking at this as you mentioned earlier. It's a fluid situation, and it's something we'll have further discussion with our general managers on as early as next week.
Uh, all right, I've got a question from Catherine Garrett with Vista Radio. Go ahead, Catherine. Hi, um, I'm just wondering, within each division, will there be a hub location to cut down on travel and risk of infection, even within provincial boundaries? Uh, what will that look like? Uh, no, we will not have a hub. Um, we will be playing, um, uh, we may have, uh, in some jurisdictions, uh, consider playing more double headers or more back-to-back games, uh, those types of things. But no, uh, the uh, games will be played in each of the centers and uh, we will not be uh, utilizing the hub concept. Guy Flaming in Edmonton, go ahead. Uh, Ron, thank you for your time. Taylor, thank you in advance for the uh, audio of this call. Uh, when it comes to finances for the teams, do the clubs currently get a cut of the revenue from the online streaming packages? And how is that done? Does it all go into one pool and split up 22 ways? Or is it uh, based on fan support, uh, the size of the, the fan base for each team? Well, historically, what we've done, Guy, is the clubs uh, receive the revenue that they're generating uh, through the subscription program. So uh, whatever audiences are generating, they're benefiting from that uh, from that revenue. It's not significant, but it uh, certainly helps offset the cost of production and uh, and uh, allows us to provide a service that's very very important, especially to the families and and, uh, and our fans who follow the games so regularly. And it'd be even that much more important, uh, of course, this season, with, uh, which looks to, uh, like uh, restrictions on the uh, number of fans that can attend the games. Teams need the income, but fans have less income to spend on online packages right now. So how do you balance those two realities? Well, we're working hard to try and uh, deliver as uh, good value as we possibly can in terms of the pricing that these packages are concerned. So uh, I think that uh, you know the whole intent is our games are family affordable, our broadcast should be family affordable, and, and uh, we're working to accomplish that. Uh, last one for me is uh, on the other side of this pandemic, and hopefully we get there sooner as opposed to later, but could any of the current changes that you're making to scheduling uh, the interdivisional play, and could it carry over to uh, once we're on the other side of this, just because teams are still going to be reeling from this financially? So to cut down on travel, could you see no interconference play for a season or something like that? I think we would like to revert back as quick as we can to our normal schedule, if you will. I think we all have... Uh, I think our teams are real comfortable with that format, and and that would be our desire. But again, that will be dictated by where we land uh, next season and what it looks like. Uh, um, hopefully, we'll uh, be on be beyond at that point in time the virus circumstance, so we can look at it objectively and, and make a decision that's in the best interest of the players and of the league overall. Uh, but uh, we uh, uh, we certainly um, uh, understand why we're doing it this year. Uh, it, I think it's the it's the right thing to do to restrict travel and to uh, manage it in our respective uh, provincial and state boundaries. Okay, uh, next up is John Keen in Kamloops. Go ahead, John. Hi, Taylor. Hi, everybody. It's good to talk some hockey here uh, for the first time in a while. So other leagues, uh, other junior leagues uh, have a, a pay-to-play format uh, where, you know, sometimes it could be uh, player fees of $10,000 for a season. That's the case here with the junior club uh, out of our city. Uh, was this ever explored? How far down the road did you get there? Uh, and is this, uh, you know, something um, that could be looked at? Uh, no, the WHL is responsible for 100% of the uh, of the player expenses of playing, and that's the uh, arrangement we have of our players, and we tend to honor that. And and, um, you know, it's not as if we haven't explored different options, uh, whether it's uh, preseason training and a variety of different options, but we've, uh, you know, we have a commitment to the players that we've made through a standard player agreement. We tend to honor that, and, and um, uh, that's the model that we have. And that's one of the reasons, quite frankly, that you have to admire 
our ownership through this is that they have, uh, uh, despite the challenges of uh, virtually no revenue, uh, prepared to move forward with the season, and, uh, and um, that's pretty uh, commendable when you consider that we are we have a different model completely where we pay 100% of the expenses for the players. All right, that leads me into uh, my next question about uh, the owners. Uh, it's going to be a, a challenging year uh, from an economic standpoint here around the governor's table. What's the resolve like to say, hey, we might have to really eat a lot of uh, um, you know, expenses here without revenues uh, this upcoming season? Well, they, they've, uh, they've made it very clear that they're committed to the players and their development. And, uh, and despite the fact that uh, attendance will be uh, minimalized uh, and uh, revenues uh, will be limited. Uh, they are prepared to meet that commitment and move forward. And I think there's a, there's a, um, uh, you know, I think it's a strong statement uh, to be made under these circumstances. So <clears throat> we're moving ahead, and uh, and uh, I think it's uh, it's safe to say that uh, you got to admire the, uh, the the resolve and the commitment from our ownership uh, through this uh, through this very difficult period of time. Uh, okay, next up, I've got. Paul Figler, who I believe is in Red Deer. Go ahead, Paul. I have a two-part question. The first part of my question is uh, usually within about three weeks of the start of the regular season, the uh, teams have to make decisions on their overage players. So the question there is, uh, do we have a new date for that? And the second part of my question is that uh, on January 10th, typically is the trade deadline. Is there a new date uh, set for that? You've asked some good questions. Uh, we're working through all that. and. Uh, that's one of the reasons we need a little time to get our season started is that uh, not only are we uh, waiting for some clarification in some cases from the health authorities, we need to work through some unique changes to our regulations. And that'll be a discussion we're going to be having with the general managers in, uh, in the coming weeks in order to finalize. But uh, there will be an adjustment to the dates, uh, dates such as January 10th, where it's a cut down date for rosters and so forth will be have to be changed because of the start date of our season and those sort of things. The other thing we are doing is we're going to minimize the number of players we bring in for training camp or uh, training prior to the start of the season as well. And uh, so we're addressing all those issues now with the, uh, uh, with the general managers now that we know what our start date is. I've got uh, another question from Paul Danzer in Portland. Go ahead, Paul. Hi, Rod. I was just curious about um, testing protocol and, who will be tested and how often or where you will with that plan? For example, will build families, I assume, need to be involved somehow in that and fluid situation, but where are you with that right now? Yeah, part of that is, uh, Paula, we have to work through the uh, each of the provincial and state health authorities to establish what that actual protocol is going to be. Um, secondly, one of the reasons we wanted to bring on a chief medical advisor at this time is not only to work with the health authorities on what that actual protocol will become, but uh, to determine things such as testing and, and whether or not that's going to be required at any particular stage. Uh, uh, we have a um, um, pretty extensive screening process that we'll go through, uh, but we haven't uh, landed on what our actual testing requirements will be. Certainly the players will be tested prior to the start of the season and if they show any symptoms at any time, will be tested immediately and isolated if necessary. Additional revenue streams, what have you explored? Say, um, Jersey sponsors like we see in soccer, for example, have some options like that been talked about yet? Well, no, not really. Uh, we have um, just focused on getting back to play and, and uh, not as concerned about the commercial side of things, obviously. Uh, 
Um, both ticket ticket sales revenues and sponsorships will be affected uh, dramatically with our teams. And we'll have to be creative in how we look at other uh, opportunities for some revenue. Uh, but we do not uh, envision uh, commercializing our jerseys. Uh, um, we like the, uh, the jerseys the way they're presented currently. Uh, okay, I've got uh, Ryan McCracken uh, in Medicine Hat in the queue again. I was just wondering if you could elaborate a, a bit on uh, what Dr. Naidu's role is going to be with the league and uh, with, in communication with other clubs and things like that. His role will be primarily to review our protocols uh, to ensure that the health authorities uh, um, in each of those, uh, each of our jurisdictions, are comfortable with those uh, those uh, recommended protocols, and to um, make recommendations on improvements that we need to make in the course of the season, uh, and uh, and certainly assist us as we monitor uh, any uh, situations that might arise uh, over the course of the season. So he's a resource for us, uh, someone who. Uh, we're going to benefit from his experience in this, in this particular area, but in particular will be uh, really uh, uh, very important from the standpoint of uh, determining what our final protocols look like. And can you speak a bit about his experience? I mean, obviously he brings a pretty good resume uh, to the league uh, with his success at the bubble. Well, his experience with uh, both NHL and CFL teams goes without uh, saying. and uh, Long-time service with both those organizations in Edmonton. But uh, in addition to that, uh, his experience with the NHL as the chief medical uh, person in charge of the bubble, of the bubble or the hub in, in Edmonton, will, that, that immediate experience will be extremely important. And then I think the other thing, of course, he's had a lot of experience dealing at the club level and, and will uh, be able to help us with managing uh, situations as they may occur with, the, uh, with each of our teams. Uh, okay, I've got another question from Kelly Moore in Winnipeg. We'll go back to Kelly. Thanks very much, Taylor. Quick one for you, Ron. Have any of the various uh, uh, health authorities in the provinces and states followed the lead of Ontario with respect to no contact, or is that something you haven't had to, to deal with as yet another challenge? No, we haven't had any uh, any comments of that nature come our way. Um, I think everyone understands uh, how we play the game in the Western Hockey League, and uh, and they're very respectful of that. So we, uh, we don't envision uh, those types of discussions taking place out west. Okay, I've got another one from Lucas Pankari in Prince Albert. Go ahead, Lucas. Thanks, Taylor. Uh, first question, Ron. Uh, in regards to scheduling, this might be a question more for individual teams, but when it comes to buildings like the Art Hauser Center, where there's multiple teams that play in on a regular basis, the Mintos, the Bears, uh, et cetera, how much of the teams going to be having to work around that a little bit now as those schedules are starting to be finalized as well? Yeah, I think that it represents some more challenges. Certainly, uh, the pro protocols will speak to that and, and uh, every league and, and uh, we'll have different approaches to that. And I think our standards, not to suggest that we're that, are going to be significantly different than what the other uh, leagues would be, but certainly our standards will be high and our expectations will be high with respect to um, you know, sanitization and disinfections and so forth that we need to take, steps that we need to take with respect to the preparation of our facilities. So uh, the one thing I can tell you is that we've had excellent cooperation from all of our facilities in the Western Hockey League. We've worked hand-in-hand -hand with them on the return to play protocols, and uh, they've been very cooperative. So I am confident that uh, from a health and safety perspective, our facilities and in preparation for our games will be in good shape. Excellent. And the other question I have is kind of a follow-up to some of the other questions in regards to players going to Junior A. I know some of the prospects, uh, Denton Matejak, 
Connor Geeky are playing the MJHL. Is their status a little bit different because they're not full-time WHL players yet and they've just coming into the league now? Or is that kind of something that's you know still being worked on a little bit in returns to those guys? Uh, we're still working through that, but if the player was uh, an affiliated player last year, he's eligible to play Junior A now. Uh, it's the roster players from last season that would not be eligible currently, uh, but that's something now that we've established a start date, we're going to uh, uh, be looking at and uh, reviewing with our general managers next week. That was Ron Robinson, commissioner of the WHL with the league's uh, conference call with uh, a lot of different media, many of which you've heard here on the program over the last number of years in detail about the league's plans to return to action on January 8th. Interested to hear your feedback on what you heard, how successful you think it can be, what obstacles still need to be cleared, and uh, just your confidence level or your optimism level uh, moving forward for the WHL, maybe even just for hockey in general this season in uh, around the various leagues, especially in light of uh, what's happened with the queue being shut down now at least until October 28th. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks to uh, the two guests that you heard that uh, started things off who joined me actually last week, Terry Doyle in the OHL and uh, Paula Weston covering the Big Ten Conference, Glenn Erickson from Deb Network who joined me right after Thanksgiving Day, and uh, then everybody, I guess, that you heard on the uh, conference call. But thanks to Taylor Roca for supplying me with the audio of that conference call. Next week on the program, I do have a short list of uh, targeted guests, but I have not confirmed them as of yet, so I'm not, not looking to jinx that, especially after the, uh, the last couple of weeks here when it comes to uh, booking guests for me. So with that, I will say have a great weekend and uh, take care of each other and treat each other with respect as uh, everybody is dealing with uh, continuing to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Until then, everybody, my name is Keith Flaming. See ya.